Hi, everybody. It's the Stratosphere Lounge, episode number 102 with your friend and host, Bill Whittle. And uh, we are trying something a little new tonight in terms of how we actually handle this uh, this uh, goat rodeo. Oh, looks like we're back. It looks like we may be happening. Okay, here's what's happening. Uh, this isn't going to mean much for you folks who are watching on YouTube, but for those of you who are watching the show uh, streaming on Ustream, uh, I've been trying forever to get this to work the way it used to work they um they improved the software you know and every time they improve the software something uh, just gets a little bit worse and so uh what got worse was uh, previously ustream would be able to um i could hit the stream button and i could stream out um the music and then i'd hit the record button before we'd get the show started and that would be all that would be recorded but they changed those algorithms somehow, and so the only way that I can get the version of the show without the music on it is to have it download. And when it downloads, so that I could re-upload it to YouTube, when it downloads, it's out of sync. Um, and that's bothersome. Now, I think we just did a restart, uh, so let me just, uh, we're just trying to get the hang of this new thing. So let me just uh, let these poor people know that uh, if you just refresh the page, you should be good. Yeah, I think that's got it. Um, so uh, that's basically it. Um, and uh, anyway, sorry about the kludgy opening, but that's basically how, uh, how things work. So um, here we are. It's episode 102 of the Stratosphere Lounge, and uh, we got a few people here with us uh, live on the Ustream comment section as usual. And then um, hopefully most of you are watching on uh, YouTube. Anyway, this is the, um, this is the uh, end of the world as we know it episode. Um, so uh, I got some end of the world as we know it questions. They were a little less apocalyptic than I would have liked, actually. Um, but nevertheless, here we are. We've got the we've got the top ranked questions, and uh, we'll be taking those in a minute. I'll tell you a little bit about um, a little bit about uh, some things before we get started. And then we'll, as usual, and then we'll get going and kind of duck into these questions. Um, so uh, here's the thing. I did a little flying uh, yesterday for the first time in forever. And if you don't mind, since this is new, I'm just going to tell these people one more time just to refresh the page because. It's uh, it's important that we have our friends watching live get to watch live. Okay. Anyways, I said uh, UStream had some weird things, and and when I downloaded them, they were the show was out of sync. So I've had to reload it up to YouTube. It was a, a real pain. Hopefully, this will solve the problem. Anyway. Um, I did, as I say, got a chance to do a little flying uh, yesterday for the first time in almost a month, three, four weeks, I guess. And I've been, you know, it had been so hot out here, uh, you know, the wings had melt. I mean, it was, it's been a hundred plus for three, four weeks, and it's no fun flying in those conditions. It's a little hot on the airplane. A canard pusher is a little tougher to cool because a traditional airplane has a propeller in front and that prop wash blows right over the radiator but with the propeller in back it's a little tougher to keep those babies cool and also underneath that bubble canopy um, it's uh, it's a little warm under there but um, got a little break here in the weather in, in Los Angeles and we had a chance to um, uh, get a little cooler weather and 
two days, for two, three days, we had actual clouds. And just at the end of the day yesterday, I managed to duck out and get some, some, um, get some time uh, on it. And um, I get the flying clouds, which is the first with the long easy. Now, they, a lot of guys call this uh, uh, flying in the cloud thing, they call it cloud dancing. Um, it's not dancing the way I do it. Uh, it's cloud something. Um, when I, I we were out over Camarillo, right where you, if those of you saw the video with the cheesy music, um, right right in that general area, there was a cloud deck at about four grand. I want to say four, four five, something like that, four and a half. And I got up a little bit of speed, and I was uh, you know, seven hundred feet below this deck, and got her up to about one hundred and seventy knots, and climbed into a forty-five degree climb, with three G pull up, and the cloud deck just went which is what you want to see when you go through a cloud deck. Not like our friends in the real fighter uh, pilot uh, world, but pretty close. Got above the clouds and the sun was setting. I was literally going down over the Pacific and, and I was just weaving and ducking and, um, and, and pulling a lot of Gs around those turns. So that was the first time I ever had the chance to really fly the airplane for the reason I really wanted to fly an airplane like that, which is to just go up there and play in the clouds. And, and we're not going to make this another aviation show, obviously, but... Um, I'll tell you something that even for pilots, if you don't live out here, might be a little bit of an unusual thing. It's a little intimidating flying in the uh, desert or in a desert kind of area because it is there, there, for most of the year, th there literally is not a cloud in the sky. I mean, that's the honest truth. There's not a cloud in the sky. And that's kind of not only depressing because clouds are fun, it's, it's kind of psychologically intimidating. There's just so much sky. There's so much sky, and it's just overwhelming. You're up there, and you get this little bubble canopy, and it's just nothing but blue. And it's, um, it, can be, it can be intimidating. And I think probably the best way to think about it is if you just imagine a 250-mile um, drive, let's say, like even driving from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, about 250-mile drive. Even though you're in the desert, you have turns, you have, you, know, you have hills, you have mountains, you're going to passes, you're passing other cars, you've got something. The scenery changes. You, know, you go around a corner and down a hill and get a whole new view. But flying through um, those kind of skies with not a single cloud in the sky is an awful lot like driving to Vegas. If you can imagine Vegas being on a perfectly flat globe with nothing but a grid marker on it, and it's 250 miles away, and there's nothing between here and there, just the curvature of the earth kind of thing. It's, it's a little intimidating. All that to say that when we um, actually got some, some real clouds, I was uh, up there, and I was having myself a ball. Um, I was trying to do what my friend, uh, fighter pilot uh, Foghorn, who uh, shows up here as Viper 6, uh, said he was going to try to do if he ever got me a ride in a, in a real jet. He'd you know, try to G the sissy out of me. Uh, that's a great expression, you know, when you, I'd never heard it before, but uh, G and the sissy out of you basically means we're going to put this turn in, uh, aircraft into a 9G turn or a 7G turn or whatever you can handle, and um, and we're going to keep putting those G loads on you until you weigh two, 3,000 pounds, and that'll kind of squeeze the weakening out of you, weakling out of you. Um, I, I'm still kind of on a buzz from, uh, obviously, that weekend in Tampa, and um and I'm glad to see that uh, that Foghorn is here under Viper Check in the in the live stream because you know I I talked about these guys and I showed that picture of um, of all of us you know uh, when when I got my uh, call sign skid and I was holding up the motorcycle and it was ironic that the only guy in that picture wearing a flight suit with the, with one guy exception was the only one who isn't in the Air Force in a flight suit and that really kind of bothered me so I was able to get a picture of um, of, of of four of the guys in their flight suits. Uh, just so you know the kind of quality 
of guys that we have working for us, uh, you know, in the United States Air Force. And uh, and uh, I just really wanted you guys to see them, you know, as they, you know, as they actually dress for for combat out there. I was looking around and found a picture of uh, four of the guys who were at the ceremony uh, in their actual flight suits. Uh, here you go. Um, that's uh, that's T-Rex on the left. That's Razorback uh, in the, with the red hair in the center. Foghorn in the glasses there. And on the right is Chaz. Um, these guys are just, you know, you want to talk about deadly warriors and you want to talk about the kind of guys that keep this country safe and go up and do their job quietly without any flamboyance or without any, you know, kind of showiness. Um, just just a chance to see the guys who invited me down to Tampa and, um, you know, gave me that incredible honor. Uh, you know, four, four active duty Air Force pilots, uh, well, they certainly told me that's what they were anyway. Uh, I don't remember much after that because they had me drinking an awful lot. But anyway, I thought you might want to see these guys because they are uh, America's finest, and um, and they keep uh, our country safe uh, in the face of you know uh, terrible terrible threats, and um, and they just they just mean the world to me. So uh, I just wanted to give you guys a chance to to see what um, you know what the men of the United States Air Force really. Uh, really do look like when they're when they're geared up for for action and basically trust me uh, I know these guys they're geared up for that kind of action pretty much every single night um, I amuse myself occasionally uh, all right so we got a bunch of questions about the end of the world um, and uh, those are the, as, uh, as um, Ray Schneider points out in the live comment section, those are, in fact, we'll go back to them one more time. These are the new uh, United States Air Force uniforms that have been uh, not only approved by President Obama, but, but mandated. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that the, that the president's so good at because uh, I don't think there's a, a, a human alive who understands military morale better than the commander-in-chief of, of our of our brave armed forces. And uh, and I think this new uniform look really goes a long way to dispelling the kind of, um, you know, overly macho, overly competent, overly male kind of, you know, swagger that fighter pilots traditionally have. As, I'm sorry, I missed it. Who was it who just said it? Somebody. Yeah, uh, Azimuth Smith uh, said, these are, in fact, the happy warriors that I talked about in, in my latest Afterburner. And and you can just tell from the look of these guys just how happy they are and, and how happy they're going to be a little later when the drinks start flowing. So, um, yeah, it's an honor to be uh, a, a part of that group. And, um, and uh, all four of them told me that they'd have a a uh, uniform like that waiting for me once I got back to Tampa and that it was going to be, um, they're going to, they were going to keep it in the, sh <laughs> in the shower. <laughs> That's all I could do. I got as far as I could. Yeah, they got the new uniform with my name on it, uh, embroidered in sequins across the back. It says skid and it's hanging up in the, in the shower there in the, uh, in the, um, you know, McDill Air Force Base uh, uh, shower. Yeah, that's, that's what, uh, that's what's going to happen. All right. Um, why don't we get going here with the end of the world questions that, uh, as I said, some of them are dealing with debates and candidates. I was hoping for something a little more apocalyptic, but there's a couple in there, so we'll just chew through this. Uh, and um, and as, as I've been saying from the beginning, the reason we had to restart is because uh, uh, the things come out of sync, so I have to sync up episode 101, which is not online yet. we get that up there and go, this is 102. Hey, hey nothing particularly 
exciting about 102. Unless it's an F-102, <laughs> which by all accounts, at least from the looks of it, was a real piece of crap. Here we go. It's uh, the Zechariah time, uh, team and show again, nevertheless. Um, and he wants to know, why is our side falling for Donald the same way the other side fell for Obama? Aren't we supposed to be smarter than this? What, me? Um, me fail English? That's impossible. Uh, and related to that, and, and several others too, uh, Ben Diller said, how are those who support Trump now any different from those who supported Obama in 2008? Well, those who supported Obama in 2008 um, were uh, were voting for some unspecified change from a guy who said he was going to fundamentally transform the United States of America, and the people who are voting for Trump are voting for Trump because he's got a hat that says uh, he wants to fundamentally transform it back. Now, uh, I suppose many of you have seen the afterburner I did on Donald Trump called the Donald, and basically I said, look, we can do much, 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 much better than this guy, but we can also do much worse than him because we're doing much worse for him now. And um, and then along comes, uh, you know, I think four or five days after I made that uh, video. Uh, by the way, let me just say something about that real quick. Um, I do titles for the afterburner and then PJTV writes a headline based on that title and while I certainly have no uh, problem with my insect overlords um, and would like to remind them that as a trusted TV personality I can be useful in rounding up other humans to serve in their underground sugar caves uh, I don't often like the headlines I they, they write a headline to make it a little more uh, provocative a little bit more clickbait but um, I think I, I called it the Donald, and, and they called it the Donald, what Bill Whittle loves about Donald Trump. I like his hat. Uh, you know, that's pretty much it. So um, anyway, right after I did this thing on, on you know, well, you could do worse than Trump, although I think anybody on that stage is probably going to be better president than him. Then he makes the Carly Fiorina comments, and, you know, I— I've said this before, and this is the thing that just needs to be said about Donald Trump. Donald Trump's numbers are are what they are because Donald Trump pretty much alone is addressing issues head-on in a world that's gone upside down. He's doing it a very, 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 very badly, and he's doing it without any substance, but I suppose being a billionaire who doesn't need to be elected gives you a certain freedom, plus he's an egomaniac and an attention junkie. But he is addressing issues in a way that no one else has the courage to address them, and that's what is driving his poll numbers. Now, this is just speculation on my part, and I don't think it's you have to be a super genius to see this. If Donald Trump has these great numbers now, 40% or whatever he's got, it's because it's Donald Trump and the rest are here on, you know, debate stage aisle. You know, it's it's... Donald Trump and the rest. Now, it's Donald Trump and the rest because it's Donald Trump plus 11, right? And one dropped out, Perry dropped out. When when it's Donald Trump plus four or Donald Trump plus two, but even certainly by the time it's Donald Trump plus four, when you have five people on that stage or four people on that stage, and Trump will be one of them, his numbers are strong enough to carry him into that kind of, you know, semifinals. Then you won't have 30-second sound bites. Then you won't have a, a you know the the ability to get off a quick one-liner. 
Uh, and then people will have a chance to hear other people speak. But this whole business about t 11, 12, 16 people on stage trying to have a so-called debate is ridiculous. Everybody gets 20 seconds to talk, 30 seconds to talk. No one gets to respond. It's just a joke. It's, it's laughable. I don't know what the solution is, but it's – well, the solution is what we're seeing, right? The solution is that this is how it goes, you know? Every team is eligible for the World Series at the beginning of the season, and then pretty quickly, you know, guys kind of fall off. Carly had a strong showing, and um, and uh, I, I mentioned this on a trifecta segment, which may not have been posted until today or tomorrow. But, you know, Trump said, you know, I mean, that face, you know, it was like, you're supposed to be president of the United States, and Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment, you know? I mean, seriously. And then Carly basically did some, some of the best political messaging I have ever seen, and I'm up on these kind of things. She said, uh, look at this face, and then she showed faces of young women and old women and women all across the country. This is the face of a 60-year-old woman, and, and follow your dreams. But what was brilliant about what Carly did was that Carly didn't make it about Donald Trump. Everybody knew that Donald Trump was the guy who launched the insult that started that, but she made it about Hillary Clinton. In other words, she took a, a swipe from a competitor on our team and in such a beautiful it's a great ad too in such a beautiful elegant way made it a weapon against hillary that was a piece of spectacular piece of swordsmanship on her part and i thought man well that sounds and looks presidential and um and and donald trump isn't i don't think donald trump is going to be the nominee i just don't um i don't think hillary clinton is going to make it to the uh, nomination either, I think because, this is a whole different question, but, and certainly I'm not the first to say this either, it's not like breaking news for anybody, but the reason that Hillary Clinton email leaks keep coming out, five month gap, you remember when Richard Nixon had an 18 and a half minute gap and it was evidence um, of, uh, of his guilt that this critical thing was missing? There's now a five month gap in her emails. She's She's, she's cooked. The, the, the statute doesn't say anything about you must, sub, you must return classified documents. It doesn't say anything about you must return top secret documents. The, the statutes in question say you must return the records of the State Department. And if there's five months missing, then either she didn't do anything for five months as Secretary of State, which is fraud and incompetence or we are or the truth which is during those five months she sold uh, influence and in fact sold legislation in terms of you know export permits in exchange for large millions of dollars it's the most corrupt thing i've ever seen so look if hillary clinton isn't in the race if and i don't think she will be then i don't see how we lose and that's you know i'll eat those words believe me because we're talking about the republicans but i don't see how Bernie Sanders wins more than 20% of the vote. If for no other reason than the Democrats' own particular, um, you know, pathetic childish strategy, right? It's you've got to be women or you've got to be a minority, you've got to be black or you've got to be young. These are the only, um, these are the only uh, social groups that the Democrats have been courting, and you cannot run an old white male if you're a Democrat and hope to win, especially if you've got Carly at the top or the bottom of the ticket. And the great thing about Carly Fiorina is uh, is that she's giving women um, 
a, a serious alternative, uh, and at this point, a pretty damn elegant alternative. That face commercial, man, I I just, you know, the the, the idea that it's average women and that we're not a minority and that we're, that women are not a minority and they're not a special interest group. They're the majority of the population. Wow, that was. Um, that was impressive, and that's going to win people away from that no-good-for-nothing thin-skinned harpy. So I'm feeling pretty good right now, and I'll feel better when we get the bottom six or seven of these people off of that podium. And um, and fastest of all, you can lose um, uh, Christie. You know, that picture of him with his arm around Obama the day before the election. What a swell president. He's doing an awesome job. You know, screw you, Chris Christie, honestly. All right, so um, enough of Trump. Let's move on here. Um, Chuck Russell says, honest question, uh, myopic vision, is this a new phenomenon or has it always been around? Question mark. Speaking in reference to so many caustic reactions, when one person offers a different opinion on their own, is honest debate dying? It sure seems that way. Um, I think we only have our own lives to measure uh, first-person uh, experiences, anecdotal experiences with, uh, but this is why reading history is so lovely. There is, in my mind, absolutely no question that things are infinitely more toxic than they were when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Infinitely more toxic, infinitely more um, uh, isolated. Uh, people becoming outraged when they hear an opinion that differs from them. The country's been at political war for 20 years, but I think there's something even deeper than that. Um, when when I was growing up, and right up until the invention really of the internet, they, these things happen more or less at the same time in the, in the big scheme of things. But look, back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, we had a uniform American media culture. Everybody listened to the same news. Well, one of three, but they were all the same thing, right? Everybody watched the same TV. We all watched Cheers, and we watched MASH, and we, you know, and we watched Mork and Mindy, and, and, um, and we listened to either the ABC Evening News or the NBC Evening News or the CBS Evening News, and we all got more or less the same information. It was slanted to the left, but it wasn't so slanted to the left as MSNBC is. And it wasn't nearly as conservative as Fox News is or used to be. And so as all these information uh, outlets multiplied and as our choices increased, people begin to make choices that reinforce the choices that they've already made. People become comfortable with hearing what they already believe. And so it accelerates these um opinions and it and it intensifies them and it, and it makes people less tolerant to hear other people's point of view now this is much much worse for the left than it is for the right and it's not because we're better people although we are um, it, it's because we have to listen to the left the pop culture swims in liberalism and leftism we have we we get the left's opinion every day we know what they believe we know why they believe it we get to hear them all the time every single time that uh, Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Fallon open their mouths as so-called hosts of so-called late-night talk shows. They're they're MSNBC hosts. These guys. They're 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 far left. Um, they're far left entertainers. Um, but back in the day, 
you could watch the Johnny Carson show and you wouldn't know whether Johnny was a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, Johnny Carson made fun of who was in office and, and was also nice to presidents on both sides. I mean, Johnny, Johnny Carson was part of an America that had a much stronger middle of the culture before everything kind of got fractured. So people are in their own little echo chambers and hearing what they want to hear. And, and look, we, we do this too. Then I just check in something here. Um, I know uh, I got asked if I wanted to, I got asked by PJTV. They said, uh, here's how it worked. They said, we're going to, we, we've got an interview lined up with Larry Flint. Do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, I want to do it. Definitely, I want to do it. I don't like doing interviews generally, and I don't do a lot of them, as you probably know by now. But it's like, yeah, sure, I, I definitely want to do it. And the reason I wanted to do it was uh, twofold. I wanted to do it because there were uh, a lot of things I don't like about um, Larry Flint and because there's one or two things I do like about Larry Flint. And if you saw the interview, you know it was there. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make this about Larry Flint or how it came about. But... I got a lot of friendly fire for that, you know, like this is beneath you and uh, and you can do so much better than this. It's almost like people just assumed that I was printing Hustler magazine and that I was this guy when all I did was ask him some questions and I thought rather pointed ones. Now, he was pretty prickly when we first got in there, so you have to, in any interview, it doesn't matter who you are or who you're interviewing, you you always have to set up a sense of camaraderie if you're going to get the person to talk about anything interesting at all. So I opened with some softball questions because, frankly, his office did surprise me. His office, I didn't say this on camera, his office looks like a, you know, looks like a Viennese whorehouse, frankly. But it is filled with classical Western art, and it's filled with very romantic art. Excuse me. And, um, and it's shocking. It's just shocking to walk into that office and see, you know, these wall-sized classical Renaissance pictures. Um, and, and then and these wood desks and these beautiful Roman and Grecian statues of women. And then on his desk are like the latest issues of the, like the, you know, the, the like, kind of like the worst kind of porn. Um, but a lot of people just gave me a lot of grief about it like like it was like like I had done the publishing now there's a lot about Larry Flint that I don't like but there's a lot about him that I did like and he 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 is an example of somebody who who not only stands up for uh free speech when it's his free speech under fire, but he's one of the very few people in the publishing business, very few people of any name at all, who stands up for free speech when it's other people um, who are uh, under attack for free speech. You know, when, when Charlie Hebdo got shot up, you know, Gary Trudeau, a cartoonist, basically said, well, they deserved it. They, they kind of deserved to get killed. That's what you get for provoking these, these, this religion of peace. And, and Flint was right in front of that. So, um, you know, he was, he was being, this is ridiculous, it's absurd. He, he struck me as a guy who had a lot of courage and he had a lot of integrity on issues that I think are important. And I think, look, assault of freedom of speech, the assault of, of the ability to disagree is the number one fear I have in this country. Is this politically correct thought police enforcement with the law behind them now just terrifies me. So in that regard, I think he's a hero. There's a lot of things I think he does that are reprehensible. I liked him. I thought he was a lot softer and nicer than I thought he would be. And um, and I don't think I was particularly easy on him. I mean, he's one of these people that thinks, you know, um, he he's one of these people that thinks that, oh, Hillary, now it's just a little oversight. I read him the statute. But 
the point I'm trying to make here is it, it does actually go to the question because occasionally on this show I will actually say something that's, you know, referencing the actual question. When these echo chambers, are, and because of the fracturing of the information sources, the people get to watch a stratosphere lounge. Look, if you watch the show generally, it's because you have the same values that I do, and I think it's terrific. I think it's great. But um, you'd never be able to see me if I, if this were CBS TV, some guy just talking for two and a half hours. is not, not a chance in the world. But what I'm trying to say here is we, we can be... Um, we can be as guilty of this as as anybody else. Um, you know, the this this f nothing demoralizes me personally more than these kind of friendly fire attacks. You know, like uh, you know, this is you're better than this, and this is beneath you. Or I'm canceling my PJTV membership. You know, the the guy the guy has got um, he's he's. He's a really deep and interesting guy, and and you really probably had to be there to understand uh, that he um, he's actually a very kind of a soft guy, and 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 whether you think that mitigates what he does or not is not really important. What is important is he has stood up for some fundamental principles that I uh, that I agree with, and and to the degree that he does that, that's admirable because there are people who I do admire. Or, or did admire, who don't. You know, when when um, uh, when when Bill O'Reilly, I think it was O'Reilly, basically says, ah, this Garland thing, they're poking people with a stick. He's basically saying you deserve to get killed for freedom of speech, and, and it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I thought, I thought, anyway... I think a little more a little more tolerance would be a good thing, and intolerance doesn't mean acceptance. By the way, right? You don't have to accept it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. You just have to listen to it. And um, and I actually spent a little time with this woman who's not just a liberal, but I mean, just just got kind of thrown into a bin uh, with somebody. I had a chance to talk to somebody in a waiting room for a while, and 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 I mean, I know it's almost like a cartoon, but. I mean, this person is like super, super progressive member of the Occupy Wall Street movement, all this other stuff. I'm listening to all this other stuff. And by the way, you know, believes in 9-11 was an inside job and chemtrails, you know, and uh, moon landing was probably faked. And I would ask questions. I'd say, do you remember when the, the Trade Center fell? Yes. Do you remember on the ground and at ground zero after it was over, the outside facade of the building was came down like a bunch of forks stuck in the ground because of the, the way the outside of the building, which, which was kind of a load-bearing structure? Yes. So did you ever see a picture of the top of, of World Trade Center number seven? That's their big evidence. World Trade Center number seven just collapses on its own. It's like the... Those giant forks that were stuck in the ground cut World Trade Center building number seven in half. It was burning for five hours before it collapsed. It had been cut in half by the fact that the two tallest buildings in the world at one point fell on top of it. And this is your entire theory is based on this? And and she didn't have an answer. And I told her about the guy who was conducting the funeral service for my dad who watched that jet go over his head as it hit the Pentagon. And I said, was he in on this conspiracy? Shrug your shoulders. What about all the people driving on the on the freeway that saw the plane hit? How do you 
How do you get them in on the conspiracy? No answer. Chemtrails, you know, this idea that people are, that, that the government is dropping poison, that these, these uh, jet contrails are, are, are poison trails that are used to control the population. She fervently believes in this. And I said, I'm a pilot. How does this work? What do you mean, how does it work? Well, I mean, are they being, are they being, are these chemicals coming out of commercial jets? I don't know. Well, they better be coming out of commercial jets because if there are as many jets flying around at altitude up there that are black jets owned by the CIA, then every single air traffic controller in the universe has to be in on this, not to mention all the ground crews and everything. Yeah, I guess it's coming from the commercial airliners. Well, why would a pilot do that? What do you mean? Why would a pilot do it? Why, why would a pilot do it? Why would he gas his own people down there? Well, maybe they don't know about it. Listen, sweetheart, pilots walk around airplanes as, as a matter of course before every single time they take off. If there are things in the engines that are spraying stuff out of the out into the jet stream, they're going to know about it, and the mechanics are going to know about it, and everybody's going to know about it. Oh, well, the, the government's paying them a big sums of money, hundreds of thousand dollars to be quiet about it, and if they start talking, they're going to come after their children. You, 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 know, you get to vote? You get to vote? Really? So, you know, I don't know. I listen to this stuff. I need to know it. And, and, I, and I don't bear that person any personal ill will. You know, they, they, they literally believe they can teleport themselves and dematerialize themselves. That's fine. I don't care. But what you do realize is, is that they do vote. And, and they vote about things if they vote about things like chemtrails and f moon landing being faked and 9-11 being an inside job, and when you confront them with it, see, here's the thing about the 9-11 thing, just as an example, or chemtrails as well. Here's the thing I run into all the time with these people. They've got these theories, right? And when you confront them with these theories, like who maintains these chemical sprayers and when they... Um, when they come in and land and new poisons are loaded, who loads them? I don't know. Wait, you don't get to say, I don't know. You have to know. You have to know. When you say, have you ever seen, well, the, uh, the World Trade Center was brought down by internal, uh, you know, it was imploded with, uh, with explosives. Well, in order to prep a building to bring down even a small building is months. It takes months of putting these explosives into the steel beams with the, all the debt cord running out. It takes months and months and months and months and months. So since the World Trade Center is open 24-7, why didn't anybody come into work that morning and say, hey, what are all these debt cords doing in our, um, in our uh, office building structures? Well, I don't know. You don't get to say, I don't know. The fact that you can't answer the question means your theory is wrong. My theory is 19 Islamic savages hijacked four airplanes and flew them into buildings. And the reason that's my theory is because I saw it with my own eyes. There's nothing inconsistent about it. There's no part of this equation I can't answer. How did they fly the airplanes then? They flew the airplanes because we have pictures of them in flight school. We have their names. We have their addresses. We know where they studied, when they studied. We knew they wanted to fly just jets. We knew they didn't want to learn how to take off a jet or land a jet. They just flew the jets. That's all they trained for. My theory doesn't require any leaps of faith, and I don't get to roll my eyes, and I don't have to say no. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, no. WT7 fell because it was cut in half by debris from the World Trade Center. It burned for five hours, and then like any other building that had been through that kind of nightmare, it collapsed. There's nothing magical here, and there's no giant leaps of logic. 
You have to explain, well, how come that nobody saw this missile since it, since you've never seen an airplane disintegrate? I show you a picture if you'd like. You can go on YouTube and see a picture of an F-4 Phantom on a rocket sled going into a concrete wall that's something like 60 feet thick, and this is a big airplane, an F-4 Phantom II, big airplane. And as that airplane hits that rocket sled in slow motion, you can see the airplane turn to dust dust. It turns to dust because airplanes are hollow. Because if they were solid, they wouldn't fly. And that's why the only parts of the airplane that they can actually find after a serious crash is almost always all you get are either the hard part of the landing gear or the engine core, which are pretty much solid titanium. Everything else is just aluminum. It just vaporizes. And that's what they found in the Pentagon, and that's what they found in the hole in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I don't need anything to make my theory work. And when they can't answer the question about uh, well, where was the debt cord, or who's refueling these things? Well, I don't know. You don't get to say, I don't know. Your theory's wrong. You have to have an answer for this theory. Occam's razor says, I win. The simple explanation is the simple explanation. You know, by the way, for those of you who may still have some doubts about this, this is a little tiny little aviation diversion, just or, or much, much more likely for those of you who have to encounter these people, You'll hear them say, no, there used to be contrails, but now there are chemtrails. When I was a kid growing up, a contrail was a little, tiny, little streak, and it was very thin, and it dissipated right behind the airplane. And you can occasionally see those contrails today. And they'll say, here's a picture of a contrail. This is a picture of a chemtrail. Okay. It's true that airplanes do not leave the same kind of markings in the sky that they left in the 50s and 60s and up through the 70s. By the time we got into the 80s, it started to change. And for those of you who are interested in these kind of things, who run into one of these lunatics who have no other explanation for this, let me just very briefly explain something to you. Starting with the 747, I want to say, um, the design of jet engines changed and they became far more efficient and they became considerably quieter. They, they transferred into something called a high-bypass jet engine. So since I love talking about this stuff, let me tell you what a jet engine used to be. A jet engine was essentially, still is, a, a turbine. It's like a fan, a turbine at the front. And if you look at the early jet engines, if you look at the nacelles, the things that hold the engine on a 707, the first successful commercial jetliner, DC-8, DC-9, 727, and the early first model 737s, you'll find the jet engine is actually pretty narrow and pretty long. That's because it's essentially a straight turbojet. It's a turbojet engine. What does that mean? That means that in the early jet engines, the opening of the engine where the, where the fan spins, it meant that all of the air that's doing anything to push the airplane is going through the engine. It's going right through the engine core. So, and that makes sense, right? Great. So basically, on a 707 or a DC-8 or a MD or DC-9 or a DC-8, whatever, any of the old jets that used to leave those little thin contrails, all of the air was going through the jet engine. The engine sucked the air in, and it spit it out at high speed out the back end, and that makes a pretty small, pretty narrow little wake. A contrail is just condensation. That's where the word contrail comes from. It's condensed. It's, it's water vapor is heated, and then it freezes in those very high temperatures in the stratosphere, leaves a little ice trail, and then the ice usually just sublimates back out into the air. That's a, that's a high bypass, sorry, a, a, a low bypass traditional turbo jet. Starting with the 747, I want to say they realized that there was a way to get more power, less noise, and more fuel efficiency out of a jet engine. Hooray! And that's what became a turbofan engine. If you look at any single 
airplane that you're likely to fly on today, I can't think of an exception to this. If you stand in front of it at the jetway and you look at the 737 or Airbus that you're about to get on or whatever the case may be, you will see that the engines are much wider than they used to be and they're not as long. And the reason they're much wider is because a good way to think about them is they're not really pure jets in the way that the old jet engines were. They are, in fact, propeller airplanes. They're propellers that instead of having four blades, they've got a fan that may have 30 or 40 blades. It's called a turbofan engine. What happens in a turbofan engine is, yes, air still comes through the front, and yes, air still goes into the jet engine intake. That's why it's a jet engine. And once it gets inside, the air is compressed and is squirted with oxygen, uh, uh, with, with fuel. And because the air is compressed, it's carrying a much higher oxygen density. And that fiery blast comes out of the back of the engine, and it provides thrust. That's true. But what it's mostly doing is it's spinning a turbine on the back of the engine, and that turbine is running a shaft that runs through the engine to spin the much, much, much bigger turbine out front. So basically, you've got a jet engine turning a big fan. Instead of it just being pure jet thrust coming out the back, some of it's jet thrust, but the vast majority of the energy is essentially just spinning a fan, which is a 30-40 bladed propeller. They're essentially jet-powered propeller airplanes. It's what modern uh, commercial jetliners use. And because they're taking in a much bigger volume of air, a much bigger volume. Instead of this little tiny little bit of hot air that goes just out through the thing, they're taking in a much larger version of air that comes around the hot core, so it's a big, huge volume. And basically, you're multiplying the volume of air that, goes, that gets warmed and pushed back by, I don't know what the factor is, 10 probably, something like that. Okay, so jet engine design changed and they leave different contrails now because they're moving much more volumes of air are being heated than used to be heated before. Close to say, used to be that a small volume of air was accelerated very quickly and now a much larger volume of air is accelerated less quickly. But they produce a tremendously larger plume of heated air and that's why the contrails are more persistent than they used to be. So, yes, we do need to listen to other people. I listen to people talk about chemtrails, and it's not so easy to defeat. I listen to people talk about the Loch Ness Monster. I hear people talk about 9-11 being an inside job. I hear people talk about faking the moon landing, and then I tell them that building a TV studio in a full vacuum is harder than going to the moon. That's ridiculous. Is it? You ever... Miss Captain Simple Science here. I wish, you know... Here, this may work. Hang on a second. Okay, watch carefully. Here's why your moon landing couldn't happen on a soundstage. Now watch. Okay, what just happened there in that magical uh, feat of engineering? I made an extremely small pressure difference, very small pressure difference, by sucking the air out of that bottle of water. I reduced the the air pressure inside that bottle, I didn't reduce it to zero or anything like zero. I just reduced it a little bit. So why did it crunch up? Did I suck all the support out of the plastic? No. No. By, by just sucking a little bit of air out of the top of this plastic bottle, the bottle got crushed because all the air around it crushed it. We do not realize that we're living at the bottom of an ocean of air that exerts thousands of, well, I don't know, I don't know what the exact 
15 pounds per square inch, I want to say, I don't know what it is, on sea level. But the point is, is that air is pushing down on everything all the time. And the reason that this bottle looks normal right now is because, yes, there's enormous amount of pressure on the outside pushing in, but the air pressure on the inside is the same pushing out. Here is a piece of paper, right? It should be easy for me to punch my finger through the paper, and it is unless I've got my finger on the other side of the paper, in which case it's impossible to punch my finger through the paper because the pressure on both sides are equal. So if you imagine this water bottle now, and I instead of just me going like sucking just a little bit of the air out of there, if I took all the air out of that bottle, that bottle would be crushed all the way down to, to next to nothing, right? Because all of the surrounding air pressure would reduce this bottle and pressure on it in one side. Thank you very much, Foghorn. It's 14.1 PSI at sea level on a standard day. That's what I get for having people know what they're talking about sitting in my audience. All right, so you with me? So if it's what it does to a little bottle, right? If it does this to a bottle, what would it do to a structure the size of a TV studio? You can't just shoot it in a hangar, you know? You can't pump the air out of a hangar. You can't. And the air has to be pumped out of a hangar, not because of the gravity. It doesn't nothing to do with the gravity. The evidence for the moon landing is in every single piece of video ever taken of the moon landing. Anytime you watch an astronaut walk on the moon, you look at his feet. Look at his feet. This is fine grain dust. In an atmosphere, that dust would make a dust cloud. There's no dust clouds on the moon. Watch the dust on a lunar mission. It doesn't even have to be with a rover. Watch the feet. The dust goes out in little sprays like water because that's how dust behaves in a vacuum. And you, as an engineer told me, it is much, much, much easier to go to the moon than it is to make a soundstage into a perfect vacuum. So we listen to their points of view. Do they ever listen to ours? No, they just don't. <sighs> Kevin Jordan says, do you think there's some genetic defect in stupid people that prevents them from ever maintaining passing speed in the left lane? It is a genetic defect. It's not got to do with stupidity. I see plenty of bright people moving slowly in the left lane. It's a lack of education, Kevin. It's just that no one ever taught him how to drive. And I think um, that this could easily be remedied I think, I don't know, a hundred executions would probably do it. I think that would be an all, all you probably need. Um, if I was the president of the United States, you know how I feel about this country, you know how much I love this country, but there are some things I would uh, immediately uh, do with, uh, with foreigners. And the first thing I would do if I was president after I got the Constitution back in shape and the rule of law reestablished is I would uh, basically talk to uh, Angela Merkel and I'll say, um, We'd like to hire 10 million Germans, maybe. May, it may take more than that, 30 million. Uh, we'd like to hire them and pay them decent wages. We'll fly them over here, and they can come over here and teach Americans how to drive. Uh, I live, my apartment overlooks, and I commute on a regular basis, almost on a daily basis, the most congested road in the world, the 405 freeway between the 101 freeway, which is where I live, and LAX, is the most heavily trafficked road in the world. It's six lanes or something like that. They just opened it up a little bit, still bumper to bumper. And one of the reasons it's bumper to bumper is because everybody is trying to go the same speed in all the lanes. And uh, if the density is low enough for people to be in their own lanes, you will be in the fast lane and you'll be doing as fast as the idiot up in front of you wants to go. 
the Germans understand this. Uh, most people do. I don't want to say the Italians do because I've never been to Italy, but I, I have not heard good things about their driving. So listen, it's actually pretty simple. It's just very simple. It's called differentiated traffic flow. And what differentiated traffic flow means is let's say you have four lanes of freeway going in each direction. Differenti differentiated, differentiated traffic flow means that you get to go pretty much as long as you want to. You just have to be in the right place. So if you want to drive slow, drive in the right lane. If you want to drive a little faster, drive one lane over. If you want to drive a little faster than that, drive one lane over. And you should never be staying in the far lane. Um, you, you pass to the left, and then you get in front of people. And when I'm going down a freeway, even if I've got all the lanes in the world, I'll drive in. If I'm driving in the middle of the night on a freeway, I will drive in the right-hand lane. I'll pass to one lane to the left, and then I'll get back into the next lane over. If somebody is passing you on the left, you're doing it wrong. Okay? It's really that simple. If somebody is passing you on the left, you are in danger of the electric chair if I ever come to my full powers of dictatorship because it is the most frustrating thing in the world. It's just the most frustrating thing in the world to realize that the person over there is doing 56, that person's doing 56, this person's doing 56, and the person in front of me is doing 56. You all need to get over, and if you're not actually passing somebody, you need to move to the right. If you're not passing somebody, if you're not in the act of passing somebody, you need to move over to the right. Slow traffic, keep right. That should be a capital offense in this country. Uh, one warning, and that's all. Um, I, I, it, it literally frustrates me more than anything in this world. It, it really does. I get, I get a little bit, not even a little bit, I get, I get pretty nutty over it because it's so self-inflicted, you know. Traffic in LA is so awful. It is awful. It's awful because you don't know how to drive. You know, you pass on the left. I did some, uh, Dave Wellman says I might have been getting this backwards. I'm in the right lane going slowly. I'm behind a guy in the right lane. What I do is I move over to the left one lane. I pass the guy. I get in front of him, and then I move back over again, leaving the passing lane open for people who may want to go faster than me. Right? So, obviously, I guess I'm, I'm getting the feedback. I got it wrong. I, you, you pass to the left. You, you, you keep to the right. When I say move right, I mean move to the right to get out of the way. Everybody should move to the right. So, I don't, I, maybe I was misunderstood, but I certainly know how it works. Stay right, pass to the left, get back over to the right. Pretty simple. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's somebody's going to pay. Somebody's going to pay. Yeah, David Proctor says, the world that we know it ends, which is more important, control of the military or control of the information, airwaves, Internet, etc.? Well, I don't mean to be um, a jerk about this, David, but if the world as we know it ends, there is no information, there's no electricity, there's no airwaves, there's no media, there's no Internet, there's no nothing, so I'll go with the military on this one. Um, one of the things that is uh, so disturbing about what this president is doing is is he, he realized he didn't have to he doesn't have the political capital to sink aircraft carriers or to, you know, chop up fighter jets. He apparently thinks he's got the political capital to cut our armed forces by 40,000 people. Um, but what he realized was that, you know, in order for, weapons are weapons, and it's important to have the best weapons in the world, and we do have the best weapons in the world by a wide margin. But that's not the most important thing. It's the warriors that the important thing is, and, and I'd much rather, and I don't think it's up for much debate, I'd much rather have a superior warrior with an inferior weapon than an inferior warrior with a superior weapon. Um, I think uh, it's pretty clear. 
John Boyd, who I admire so much, and do a whole show just on Boyd. Oh, lost the Ustream connection. That's nice. Now it's, it says I'm recording. We'll see if the streaming and the recording are separate things. Uh, well, that'll play out. <laughs> Here we go. I'm sorry. I have to, just, now I'm going to have to edit this one. Sorry about this, folks. This wasn't me. Let's see if it. Uh, let's see if it's back. Is it back? Is it back? It looks like it's back. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It might actually be in one ongoing recording here, but then again, I've got the problem. Um, eh. I'll just send some more messages because people are panicking here. <laughs> oh, Viper check. Foghorn just says, that's just blue. It just blew. Um, it's true. It's like, it's, 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 um, I feel like Gus Grissom and, um, and, um, and Han Solo together. Uh, it just, the connection, it just blew. I didn't touch it. It just blew. And also it's, it's, it's not my fault. It's, it's not my fault. This one's not my fault. This is not the worst produced show on the internet fault it's their fault it just new stream has lost the connection oh all right so i'll see about that again it just so hit you know there you go one more time for the all right now back in business anyway um yeah uh, there, there is not going to be any airwaves or information. Uh, it's going to be just the military. And as I was saying, the, the warriors are the, the, the warriors are being struck out of the military. And uh, the, the thing that I've found just to be so alarming, and it's a rather pithy phrase, but I do like it. I think I told the story of that green. I changed his rank on purpose because I didn't want him identified. I think I said he was a major, his lieutenant colonel, who um, basically was a uh, training four hundred some green berets, and he, you know, they asked him to check on tattoos and look for Maxim magazines and all the rest of it. And then um, and then they said, oh, and by the way, you need to ask your, your soldiers if they have any guns at home, and if so, uh, what kind and um, who they belong to. And uh, he said, I won't obey that order. And, um, and I said, well, you know, as long as we have guys like that in the U.S. military, guys who won't obey orders like that, then we have nothing to worry about. But he's not in the U.S. military anymore. That terrifies me. Um... It doesn't terrify me that much. You know, I, I genuinely cannot imagine a world where uh, U.S. military personnel open fire on American citizens. I can certainly imagine a world where organizing for America opens on U.S. citizens, but the, the military is not only the uh, great pool of, um, of physical courage and honor, it's also the single great concentration of American values and... Um, 
and traditions and uh, and decency. And so I'm not too worried about uh, the military, uh, you know, turning on us. I know a lot of people got all amped about um, Jade Helm. And look, I read I read uh, the description of Jade Helm, and I found it disturbing. I found it disturbing, but I didn't lose my um, didn't lose my mind over it. And it's over, and Texas is still in one piece. So, you know, this is the kind of thing we were talking about earlier with this um, idea of uh, echo chambers and 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 people being just so intolerant. The, and this is an important thing that I keep in mind all the time. This guy, uh, this president, and this administration do so many things that are horrible, illegal, and and appalling that you don't have to invent stuff like that. And I think we got a question like that coming up. Um, Zachary, uh, no, I'm going to skip that because we're running a little bit of time here. Uh, here's here's what I was looking for. This is directly connected to what I was just saying. Binary Artisan, great name, says, You conservatives are all so cute giving your opinion on, who's gonna did, on who did what at the Republican debates. What on earth makes you think there's going to be an actual election at all in 2016? Now, I think he's being facetious there, obviously. Um, but, see, this is the kind of thing where you, where you have to just kind of have some kind of connection with reason. Um, the things that Barack Obama has done to this country are so appalling, just the real things. You know, selling out the missile defense shield and Fast and Furious and, and allowing his Secretary of State to put, you know, classified information on a server in a, in a bathroom someplace, all the leaks of information of the names of our agents, our, 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 our intelligence agents' names captured by the Chinese just due to incompetence and, and the inability to conduct a simple status of forces agreement in Iraq, which led to the whole rise of ISIS. I mean, you know, on and on and on, ginning up a race war with, with, uh, with these cases that don't hold any water whatsoever just to maintain his base and win elections. I mean, the things a guy does that are so appalling are so numerous that you don't have to invent things about him that make you sound like a nut job. Um, so... There is no world where he doesn't leave office. There's just, just no world where he just suspends elections and decides to stay. He doesn't have to. He's already done what he's here to do, and, and, and the fact that he is sabotaging Hillary Clinton's campaign is telling me that despite all of the evidence to the contrary in terms of, look, he was raised by, by communists, and he's a communist, and he's a Muslim sympathizer. I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if he was actually a Muslim. I can tell you this. The first video we did prior to him um, becoming elected, uh, I worked on with Jeremy Boring. It was called A Thousand Sundays, and it basically said, you know, he was in that church for 20 years. That's A Thousand Sundays. What do they teach at Trinity Baptist Church? And we took a look at at what Reverend Wright was saying, and what Reverend Wright was quoting a guy named James Cone, and James Cone came up with this idea of, um, I, I want to say it was liberation, it's not liberation theology, it's, uh, he invented a, a form of Christianity, which is Christianity mixed with Islam, and, um, you know, you don't have to invent things for, to realize the damage this guy is doing. He doesn't want Hillary Clinton to follow him. Not only does he hate her personally, he doesn't want his reputation as being the historical president to be upped or even weakened by there being, um, God almighty. All right, well.
I don't know what the problem is here. Lost it again. I'm sorry. I just have to. Um, I just have to apologize, but uh, I don't know what the problem is. You know, we've done 102 shows here, uh, and then well, we've done 60 in the new building. We've had internet problems twice or something. It just dropped it twice. It's Black Liberation Theology is what I was talking about. Thank you. So if you're um, Yep, she just blew again. Hatches just blew again. That is a very, very, very annoying thing. In any event, um, it's back or trying to be back. So if you can just refresh your... Oh, for the love of God. Hang on. Uh, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, it's just I've got the, the Ustream is showing me five bars of internet, and then it just goes away. It just stops. Um, sorry about this. Okay. Well. The record looks like it's been on, so I suspect it's recording to my uh, my own drive here. Anyway, there's another show I've got to spend time with and edit now, which is uh, not all, something I have a lot of time for. In any event, in any event, um, this business about there not being an election is is just you sound nutty. Um, nobody has a lower opinion of this guy than I do, but see, he doesn't have to do that, and it would be the end of them if he did. Um, because the president simply refusing to leave office is the thing that would cause people to get in the streets with rifles. I mean, it just, it just, it's inconceivable to me. He, um, he wants to go out in his little blaze of glory, and he'll do what he can to make sure that the world is, is made in his image. When he's done, he's going to get this Iran deal one way or another, and he's going to, you know, he's already destroyed so many things. He's setting up what he's setting up, but I don't think he wants Hillary Clinton. I don't think he wants the first black president followed by the first women president. It's all about him. I think the simplest explanation for what Obama does is he's a narcissist raised by communists and, and Islamists. And, it, and while it often seems like he has a determined plan to destroy the country, I just think it's mostly just raw ego. Because if he was, in fact, competent and hardworking, he'd be a lot further along. Um, the fact that the guy plays as much golf as he does kind of takes him out of the realm of evil genius in my mind, you know? I mean, if, if I was working to save the country, I wouldn't be golfing as much as he's golfing. I wouldn't be golfing at all, as a matter of fact. We got a lot of work to do, and we're in real trouble, and we don't have the time for this kind of thing. I think it's just all about him. I just think he was just the perfect, the perfect guy who walked through the door for them and just said, "Hey, Harvard Black, he'll get us everything he wants. He believes in it, but you know, if anybody criticizes him, we'll just call him a racist. We'll get away with murder." There you go. Um. Joanna Hunt says, uh, do you think that we could have an intellectual revolution in America? 
How could we make that happen, where reason, logic, debate, and discussion are valued over emotion, rhetoric, and marketing? Um, I, again, I don't mean to be a jerk about this, Joanna, because it's a great question. It's the kind of question so beautiful almost makes me cry, but uh, I don't think it's a modern phenomenon. I'm not sure that reason, logic, debate, and discussion have ever been valued over uh, emotion, rhetoric, and marketing um, in, in terms of large populations. Uh, the founding fathers, the genius, I think, of the founding fathers were they were not a large group of people. It wasn't an entire nation that was being run by debate, discussion, logic, and reason. It was a relatively small group of people, very small, 20. And really, when you get down to the big thinkers, probably 10, 5, 6, 7, 10. Um, I like this, um, what, uh, scroll it Pac-77, so yeah, B.O. Barack Obama is so yesterday. Oh, you got that right, sister. He is. He's really just so yesterday. It's old news. He's just tired, and I you know, think people are ready to get him go. Anyway, uh, back to what we were talking about. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the reason America was as successful as it has been and could be successful, again, if we just get back to the instruction manual, honestly, you know, there's nothing in that Constitution that's wrong. It's just all the problems we have or we don't listen to it. But what I think happened there was there was, in fact, a small group of, of – of a remarkable, uh, there was a remarkable quality. I haven't really thought about this in, in much detail to the founders, but here's the thing. They were intellectuals, no question that they were intellectuals and deep thinkers and very serious thinkers and read a lot and studied a lot, but at the same time, they weren't just intellectuals. They had jobs. They were in many ways regular people. They were, so the modern definition in my mind of an intellectual is somebody who does nothing but just, you know, speculate and and uh, and all the rest of it you know and just talk about you know movies and and you know sit there sipping their coffee and smoking their cigarettes and talking about the revolution when you got the founders you had guys who who were extremely well educated uh, by any standards and at the same time they didn't do that for a living they weren't legislators they weren't aristocrats they didn't just sit around and drink tea and have the servants bring them in and smoke cigars and talk about politics. They had practical, real-world experience. Washington was a was a planter. He was a farmer, basically. And so was Jefferson. And uh, you know, Ben Franklin was a printer. And 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 John Adams was an attorney. Precious few attorneys, by the way. Um, you know, Paul Revere was a silversmith. Um, um, you know, Sam Adams was a brewer. And Madison, all these guys, they were they they had real world experience, and and they were in fact a small, small, small little case in time and space, where twenty people or forty or fifty or however many you want to put in there, uh, at the Constitutional Convention and 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 you know in that general vicinity, were in fact people who were trying to make a country based on reason, logic, debate, and discussion. Now they never got there. Um, and the reason you know they never got there was because the the um, the Constitution and the in fact the entire cause for independence was was pretty uh, pretty much a minority opinion. The reason the minority opinion became the majority opinion was because of the things you talk about emotion, rhetoric, and marketing, and that's why Tom Paine is the great unsung hero of the Revolution because while Tom Paine had some contributions to the intellectual framework of the country. 
I'm not. I don't want to conflate the the Constitution and the Declaration, but certainly in the time of the Declaration, just prior to the Declaration, you may have a Jefferson, and you may have a document that is, in fact, the the the, the Declaration of Independence is is one of the finest pieces of thinking and legal arguing in the world, which reaches poetry in cases, you know, um, you know life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness, inalienable rights, you know, that's poetry. It's a superb, rational, reasonable argument. But that didn't do it. It was, it was common sense. It was Thomas Paine and Thomas Paine's ability to take a noble cause and a noble idea and then apply emotion, rhetoric, and marketing. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I kind of think that's what I do. I mean, I think I have a reasonable ability for reason, and logic and, and so on in debate and discussion. I have these high-level uh, kind of thoughts, and, 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 I, and I certainly read about read the work of much better minds than mine and have enough of a monkey grap, grisp, uh, grasp on them to you know, be able to sketch out the outlines. So I think I'm probably reasonable enough, rational enough, and just barely smart enough to understand some of these things, and they're not terribly difficult to understand. My actual skill set is in emotion, rhetoric, and marketing. I know how to sell these ideas. Um, I'm not trying to duck around your question because ultimately what your question is, is is a rational society possible? And I think the answer is it is, but it can't get too big because this is the problem. I think in order to have a rational, reasonable society, you have to have a reputation, and that reputation has to be something that's accessible to everybody. One of the reasons there's less crime in a small town than there is in a big city, they're made out of the same stuff, you know, it's still people, right? I mean, people are still people. But in a small town, you commit a crime, everybody knows it, and you're ostracized. You commit a crime in a big city, you just vanish into the sea of people. And um, the idea that you're, that you have a reputation in a small town, in a small community, means that you're known to be either an honest guy whose handshake is as good as his word or his handshake is as good as a contract or you're a scoundrel who shouldn't be trusted loaned money or given any positions of authority so um they they um they have a, a reputation and not to put to find a point on this but when you get into computer simulations of the um prisoner's dilemma which is where two people have been accused of a crime and if one rats the other one out this simplifying it if he rats the other guy out, he goes free. If the other guy rats him out, the other guy goes free. If they both rat each other out, something uh, less bad happens. And if they neither rat each other out, something slightly less bad happens. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very classic game called The Prisoner's Dilemma. But basically what you find is in The pr Prisoner's Dilemma, if you're going to play The Prisoner's Dilemma one time, the winning strategy is to screw the other guy. You have to. You, if you screw him and he doesn't screw you, you win. But if you don't screw him and he screws you, you lose. If you both screw each other, it's not so bad. So it is the logical choice is to is to basically screw the other guy on the prisoner's dilemma. And that has been run a thousand million times on computer simulations, always is the winning strategy. However, however, if you play the uh, iterated prisoner's dilemma where you continually play the game with the same opponent, then the rules change and what you find through thousands of computer simulations, uh, simulations and common sense too is that it is not the winning strategy if you're playing again and again and again with the same person to constantly screw the other guy. The best strategy is called tit for tat. In other words, you lead out by being a nice guy. You don't screw that guy. If he screws you, then you screw him back. 
and you keep screwing him back until he stops screwing you, at which point you then stop screwing him. That is the optimum way to win that game. Um, and so you can think of City Life as a series of isolated games of the prisoner dilemma where two people meet and they never meet before and they're never going to meet again and one guy mugs the other one because he can get away with it, disappear into the crowd and so on. While life in a small town is more like the iterated prisoner's dilemma where, yeah, I can stick up Dave, the pharmacist, and take his money right now, but Dave knows who I am and everybody else knows who I am and I'm going to be identified and I'm going to go to jail and when I get out of jail, no one's going to trust me, no one's going to talk to me. So um, I do think you can have a rational, reasonable, respectable society, but I think you have to have a, a reputation with it. Once you get into cities and the anonymity of it, it's the anonymity that gives you the cloak of invisibility. This is why uh, I think Andrew Clavin talked about this, although if Clavin talked about it, it's probably useless. I'll just chuck it out there just as an example of the kind of low-grade thinking that you would get if you were watching the uh, Clavin Lounge, for example. Nobody was basically saying that what the media does for Obama and Clinton is it gives them the cloak of invisibility, and that's what the Ring of Power does in Lord of the Rings. The, the Ring of Power doesn't allow you to have like a Jedi force thing where you can just move objects with your will, and the Ring of Power doesn't give you, uh, you know, a flaming sword doesn't appear in your hand. What the ring does is it makes you invisible, and when you're invisible, you can get away with murder. And once you realize you're invisible, you will try to get away with murder. You, it's, it's inevitable. That's what the ring of power is. So the fact that the media won't look into Obama or um, uh, Clinton or, or the rest of them, the way they looked into Richard Nixon, is a cloak of invisibility that the Democrats throw over their own candidates. And it makes them corrupt. And it's the same kind of an escape hatch that every criminal has in a big city. I'm going to take your money, and I'm going to run. I'm going to get in a subway. I'm going to go down four stations. No one's going to know me. No one's going to recognize me. I'll never see that guy again, and I'll get away with it. So I do think you can have a rational society, but I think everybody needs to know who they are and be held accountable for it. Nigel Briggs says, if the world as we know it ends tomorrow and we have to abandon Earth and start over, if we started in a new Stone Age and could not bring any tools or technology, but we had all of the knowledge we've acquired so far, how long would it take to rebuild civilization back to the point of iPhones and 787s? I love this kind of question. This is the kind of thing I was really looking for. Um, there have been a couple people that have, have tackled this question. There's two books that I can highly recommend uh, on this subject. Um... One of them, a uh, relatively recent piece of science fiction, I want to say it was written in the 50s, 50s or 60s. It's an amazing book. It really blew my mind. It's called A Canticle for Leibowitz. And basically, it's about um, the end of the world. As a, I suppose there's a nuclear war or something, and there's nothing but rubble. And it opens in an era of monks and monasteries, and uh, there's a lot of talk about St. Leibowitz. And Leibowitz was just a regular engineer who wrote some things down, and these monks are looking at these books, trying to get the fundamental basics, just trying to get the basics of what it was that this St. Leibowitz was, uh, was talking about with his so-called electric light. And after generations, I want to say, and it's been a long time since I read it, but it's really good, all of these bits of, of, um, bits of you know, knowledge are preserved and illuminated as manuscripts as in the Middle Ages. And it's basically about these 
you know, monks who are trying to figure out what had happened hundreds of years ago, again, from memory, it seems like, and that what this one engineer, they don't even know what the word engineer means, this St. Leibowitz who wrote some things down about things, and then eventually they start, strike like an arc light up in a, in um, in the basement, and it's the first time there's been electric, electric light on Earth in hundreds of years, and, you know, they're worried it's the devil. And it's a really, 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 really cool book, and it moves in like two or three different epochs as well. Canticle for Leibowitz. Oh, by Walter Miller. Thank you, uh, Kevin Kilcoyden. Um, that's one book. And another book that goes after this is by my good friend uh, Sam Clemens, um, who uh, wrote A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And basically the theory there was Twain, uh, Twain loved the British. He loved going to Britain. He loved his time in England, but he despised nobility and aristocracy. He just despised it. He thought it was complete waste of human material and couldn't understand why some of these useless people were given everything while so many hardworking people were given nothing. So basically what what uh, the Yankee, he called it, you know, the Yankee was how he kept referring to the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, uh, was one of the few books he ever published that really got him into trouble with the people he cared about. There were people who didn't like what he said in Huckleberry Finn, which is really probably his only genuine masterpiece, but the, Connecticut Yankees right up there. Um, but the British really, it, what what it really, I think what Twain said about it and what observers said is that by the time he published the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, the British had developed so much love for Mark Twain that they let this one slide and they still loved him afterwards. But it is an indictment of, of nobility and royalty. I mean, there's this woman comes in and she wants to be taken to these nobles and he leads her out. She leads him out and it's a, literally it's a, a sty full of pigs, you know, and um, and she couldn't see that they were really pigs. It was pretty, pretty sharp commentary. But the fun part of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court is it's basically a, 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 an American Yankee from, what, late 1800s, I want to say mid to late 1800s, magically transported back to the Middle Ages, and he has all of this knowledge. He knows about steam engines, and he knows about, um, he knows about uh, you know, various engineering things and weapons and all this other stuff. So I love this idea. I just think it's a fun idea. I like to think how much knowledge could I preserve and just me personally, you know, if I were to just be sent back there or if there was a zombie apocalypse and we had to start from scratch. So I can get into a little more details with your question here, I think. The first thing that would have to happen would be you would have to, in my opinion, because I've given this a fair amount of thought, the first thing you would have to do is you'd have to establish an academy and you'd have to, as with King Arthur's Court and also with Leibowitz, you would you would have to protect that academy. You'd have to protect it politically. You'd have to make sure that what happened inside the walls of that academy had the protection of whatever existing political system is in the world outside. If it's a king, you know, you got to make sure that you're developing toys and weapons that the king can use incidentally to everything else because you need you need the academy to survive. And, you've, and if you're in a very, very religious time, such as in uh, Leibowitz, uh, you need to pray a lot and be seen praying a lot because you're going to be accused of witchcraft and sorcery and all the rest of it and so on and so on and so on. But in answer to your question, if your question said if we still had all the materials, I think we'd be there in, in, in two generations at the top end um, because we would, we would have to use this kind of, um, you know, what's it called, the, um, like the oil drop idea where you would basically have an academy and you would have whatever survives, you'd have whatever surviving people, whatever surviving, um, 
whatever surviving knowledge, concentrate it, and start kids young. I mean, you'd have to be brutal about this selection process. You'd have to take the most intelligent, the most highly motivated, hardworking kids and just train them in modern thinking while the rest of the world goes to hell. Just train them how to think and teach them how to think. Make as many engineers and, and as many, um, yeah, engineers, right? I mean, look, if you lose civilization and you hand a guitar to a kid 2,000 years from now, a kid's going to learn how to play the guitar. If he has any musical talent, it's not the same as a guy learning how to build an electric motor. You know, it's uh, artistic. Artistic talent is latent and can be developed. You don't want to work on that. You, well, you know, and, and number one, you don't need it, right? I mean, if you're out of food and water, and you don't have electricity, you don't have shelter, you don't have medicine, then I think the arts will be okay for a while if we're just scratching on, you know inside of caves and, and banging on logs for uh, for music. Th those things kind of take care of themselves. You don't need a tremendous amount of um, technical information to write a play. I ought to know because I've written a few. But I would concentrate everything on sciences and engineering and I would train as many kids as I could and I'd get them up to speed and then I'd send them out to train other kids. I'd keep bringing them back and, and, and hopefully you'd be able to refine this thing. Now, that's to understand it. Um, you know, I mean, just this iPhone, I mean, just manufacturing this, you know, I know most of you have heard of this, it's a, it's a classic story, it's called, I think it's called The Story of a Pencil, and basically the guy who wrote it said, I'm a pencil, you know, and, and it's a simple, simple, simple little two-cent pencil, and no one in the world can make one, because in order to make a pencil, you have to be able to develop the graphite, and the graphite is a series of chemical things that have to happen in a lab. You have to chop down the wood that makes the outside of the pencil, and you have to have a machine to shape the wood. You have to have somebody who not only paints the wood, but somebody who knows how to make the paint and somebody who can prepare the paint. You have somebody who's got to mine the little brass thing that holds the eraser on, and that miner has to get the brass, and it has to be refined, and it has to be crimped to the right size, and you have to make the eraser out of the inside of, you know, guys with bad haircuts, I think, is where erasers come from. Um, so, uh, no one can make a pencil. And when you get down to an iPhone, that's, what, four or five orders of magnitude more difficult. So I think you could preserve the knowledge. The manufacturing base would take longer. And, and the thing about, about the iPhone, you know, getting back to the iPhone or something like that, that may take several generations. Although I wouldn't think it would take quite that long. Look, the way you do it is you don't start, you don't try to start on the iPhone. The iPhone didn't come out of nowhere. You go back to making a spinning floppy disk or a spinning hard drive, and if you can get a hard drive that could save 500 bits of information, yeehaw. You know, the reason we watch these things get smaller and cheaper is not because they just immediately sat out in 1979 to make a, you know, a 10 gigabyte hard drive or a 17 terabyte hard drive. They made a 500 kilobyte hard drive, then a megabyte hard drive, then a two megabyte hard drive, then a five, then a 10, and we watched it happen. Then there's a 50, now the 50, now there's a 100. 100 costs what the 50 used to cost. Wait, wow, fantastic. It's all incremental. It's all little changes, little evolution, getting things um, tweaked. So you'd want to preserve that primal information on how to make things happen, and then you worry about people getting them back up to speed and, and smaller and cheaper and lighter and all the rest of it. you got big problems in a case like that, I think. Uh, three to go. Michael McManus asks, Emily Blunt's comments, as someone with a British mother, what do you think of what Emily Blunt said about regretting her citizenship? Emily Blunt, British actress, uh, recently got her American citizenship. She said she saw the Republican debate and she was so shocked by what she saw that it made her regret her decision to become an American citizen. 
that is precisely, exactly, and completely identical to Emily Blunt walking onto a movie set with a copy of War and Peace under one arm and wearing a pair of glasses that didn't have a prescription in them. It's no different than that. It's the exact same thing. It's somebody who's very shallow and very stupid, trying to sound deep and trying to sound moral, and it's somebody who doesn't think about anything. She knows that her that her colleagues would appreciate the fact that she's just so embarrassed by these anti-immigrant um, Republicans and their repulsive, disgusting philosophy. Well, meanwhile, back at home in Britain, they're setting up police checkpoints to keep out what, 1% of the illegal immigrants that we have to deal with in this country, right? She's just an idiot, just like the rest of them. She probably believes it, but if all of her friends believed that uh, that the Republicans were great and had terrific ideas, then she would have said, I just watched the Republican debates and it makes me so proud that I just got my American citizenship. She doesn't know what she believes. She doesn't believe anything. She believes what everybody else believes. And, um, you know, with this immigration flux in Europe, they're actually starting to get a sense of what we've had to deal with for decades here. And, uh, and I'll tell you something else. Uh, you know, you keep your ear to the ground, I do, and I try to keep up on what's trending. And sometimes these are little things, but the big, 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 big picture is the one that's a hard one to get. You really got to step way back to try to get some sense of where the giant wheel of history is turning and going and you're so close to it, you can't really see it. However, um, I have to tell you, I think this political correctness thing is just about done. I think the world has been upside down for so long now that anybody with common sense in Britain says, hey, you know, this somebody broke into this guy's house nine times and he finally defends his house with a knife and he's in jail and the person who broke in is on welfare. That's just nuts. And we're paying all this money for these immigrants. Have you seen these latest videos coming out of Italy? These um, African immigrants coming up out of Italy are just walking down the street, just smashing traffic lights with a bat. You know? But all cultures are equal and all religions are equal, and it's a religion of peace. And people have been confronted with the evidence of their own eyes for so long now. This explains Donald Trump, right? It's like everybody knows this isn't true. These people... These Muslims have been at war with the world since there's been Islam. The Crusades were a counterattack to the fact that Islam had not only taken over Jerusalem, which had been run by Christians, but Constantinople, which was a Christian city, and then and swept all through the Iberian Peninsula, had all of Spain and Portugal, and basically were stopped in the gates of Vienna, for God's sakes. And it's just people are just tired of being told to believe things that they know are not true. And now the president wants to bring, what, 100,000 of these hardcore, hardcore animals, basically? I'm not unsympathetic to the plight of, of um, refugees, but when you see people who are turning away food, when you see not just turning it away, but throwing rocks at the people that are trying to, you know, to, to help them, I mean, it, it's just nuts and and they're not shy about it they're, they're not coming here crying with gratitude holding their babies up and kissing the you know the arc de triomphe or, or or the brandenburg gate or anything they're just they're just invaders who want the stuff and they want everybody to 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 get under the toe of their own pretty sick religion
And all I have to say is these um, savages and the people that back them and ISIS and all the rest, they think that the West is Europe. They think that the West is Europe. And especially, specifically, they think that the West are the European elites. It's not. There's some tough cases out there in Britain and France and Scandinavia, some real people out there. And over here, they are not, they, I know what they think we are, but they don't know what a hundred million armed conservatives, they don't understand, they don't have a clue. And we know they don't have a clue because when they do things like um, try to shoot up trains in France, everybody runs for cover. And famous French actors um, cut their hands trying to open, you know, ring the alarm on the train. And this, I forget what his name is, but this famous French actor was on that car where this guy was shooting it up when these three uh, U.S. Uh, citizens went after that guy. And he said, we were all going to die there, and we all knew it. There was, n We just knew we were going to die. It was just a question of where in the train we were going to die. It was like 550 people on that train. And this guy had an AK-47 and all these magazines and handgun and box cutters. And he just said, well, we're all going to die. And he, and he went to hit the alarm on the train. Um, and while he was doing that, three American kids who were just visiting the country, you know, just a reservist, I guess, an Air Force guy and a, and a friend, they just say, yeah, I don't think so, not today. They went down the aisle and, and, and took him out, you know, took him out. Uh, save their own lives, save the lives of all those people, there's a difference between us and them. And if you can't see it, then you don't have to look any further than that incident. If you have a train full of Europeans and a guy starts shooting and everybody ducks under cover and the only three Americans on the train are the only three people on that cart that go running after this guy and take him down, then we're different. And when I say different, I mean better. Um, two to go. Just Shaky Bradshaw says, was the tsunami warning and closing of the beach this morning for a one-foot wave, not a typo, the most important action ever taken by the Los Angeles greater government? Um, it's a snarky question, and God knows I love it, Jess, but I, I have to tell you, um, if, the, if there's a tsunami warming and the L.A. city government closes the beach, that's an appropriate role, in my opinion, for the L.A. city government. They don't know how big the tsunami is going to be. And um, even if it only was one foot, I think that's not an unreasonable precaution to make. It was a large earthquake off the coast of Chile, and, and I think it's one of the rare incidents where, um, where the government's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, what the government is not supposed to be doing, just local government, is making, there a thousand, making sure it's a $1,000 fine to throw a frisbee on a beach if it interferes with somebody else. In other words, if it goes a little nutty and lands on, doesn't have to hit somebody, just if it lands on their picnic blanket. $1,000 fine for throwing a frisbee on the beach in Santa Monica, California. That's nuts. That's nuts, 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 nuts. Um, so uh, while I'm not often in a position to defend either state of California government, federal government, or the city of Los Angeles government, um, I think, you know, we get a tsunami warming, they close the beach until the tsunami comes in. If it's a one-foot wave, okay. That's, I think, a case, a genuine case of better to be safe than sorry. And, and I think that's, you know, I mean, what's the alternative, right? I mean, nobody really knew how big that wave was going to be. And if they hadn't closed the beach and people had been drowned, you know, they'd be, we'd be wondering why they didn't do something about it. So 
Well, I'm tempted to uh, snark my way through that one. I'm going to give them the credit on this one. Although, God knows, uh, everything else they do here is pretty much insane. You know, I'm going to ban plastic bags here to stop that ocean floating continent size uh, floating continent of plastic out there in the uh, ocean that no one's ever seen and no one's ever photographed because it doesn't exist. There was one Spanish oceanographer who claimed that there was an ocean size, uh, a continent size uh, floating bottles out there. And one guy said it and everybody believed it. And so they banned plastic bags. And then um, he said, oops, I think it was off by, I think the number he came up with was 14,900%. And last question for the night. I'm a little tired here, and I got some things I need to do. Got a whole bunch of new time over targets for our members. We got a bunch of questions, in, and we shot 15 of them. And I need to prep those babies. So for the last one for the night, it's Richard Browd, who says uh, nobody knows how things work anymore. A box with wires and circuit boards is a bomb, but this bomb doesn't have any explosives or a detonator. Multi-rotor RC aircraft are called drones because that is a scary name. Climate changings are called disasters again because that's scary used to be that a high school education could prevent you from being duped so easily. Now almost everyone is so ignorant on how the things actually work that it is easy to scare almost everybody all of the time. That is a wonderful, wonderful question. That's a great question. It's a great insight. Um, hey, look at Scott Ott. Scott Ott, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, Scott Ott. Uh, Scotty Ott, who's, uh, who's uh, just made an appearance here live in the comments section. Uh, is thinking about doing a Ustream show called uh, The Scott Ott Show or The Scott Ott Hour or something. And um, I invited him to come watch the Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, we had a couple of internet uh, problems, Scotty, but as you can see, it's pretty cool and it works great. And uh, you yourself could watch the comments stream um, when I uh, log in. And then you can, um, who am I kidding? I'm not going to log in and watch your show, but you don't get the uh, you know, but um, no, I think it's great. I think uh, Scott Ott is uh, is one of the best guys I ever met in the life, of, and he's hilarious and he's really deep. He knows more about the founding of this country uh, than any any five people I've ever met. And um, and I think if Scott Ott had a show called the Scott Ott Hour, I genuinely would watch it, and uh, I think I would get all of you guys to watch it too. Um, I would recommend it highly. He's a really really good, clever, funny guy. He's not the best, cleverest, funniest guy I know, but he's up there. It's good to see you, Scotty. Um, so yeah, so here's the here's the question, right? I mean, basically what it says is since nobody understands how anything works anymore, since college educations don't really give us anything uh, useful anymore, um, people can be duped into anything. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier about um, uh, chemtrails. Right? If you don't know how a jet engine works, then why would you not believe that they're spraying chemicals? If the contrails look different then and they look different now, then and somebody says, see, they're spraying poison and you don't know anything about it, then that's a great example. Richard, I know how jet engines work. I know what a high bypass uh, engine is and why it's different, why it makes a more persistent contrail. So I don't believe this chemtrail nonsense, which is unbelievable for any number of reasons. So I actually kind of think, um, I actually kind of think that it's not just a question of how things work inside the box, although I do not disagree with you at all, um, at all. I think what's a more important quality to teach is uh, skepticism. And uh, skepticism, 
is even skepticism is being demonized with the with the the climate change thing. You're a skeptic. It's like you people are. You really is it really gone that far? You know, being a skeptic is the highest compliment in science. The highest compliment in science is to say, yeah, I don't know. We should test this. Well, you're skeptical. The science is, is the science is settled. Well, the science was settled when the Earth was flat, and the science was settled when this. Earth was the center of the universe, and the science was settled when gravity was an invisible cable connecting two planets, and the science has been settled on everything. Uh, science was settled on the steady-state universe. The science was settled on um, lack of continental drift. The science was settled on all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, germs being th spread through the air and vapors and, you know. So um, what I think is the most important thing is not so much to talk about uh, how things work inside the box, although that's extremely useful. Um, I think the uh, thing to talk about is getting people, um, getting people to learn how to think. Um, getting them, getting them to learn how to think, how, how to challenge things, how to be skeptical of things. And, you know, it's probably a good place to close, but, you know, we were talking earlier about the moon landing being faked and about 9-11 being faked and about um, chemicals being sprayed from airplanes and these chemtrails and the Loch Ness Monster and all the rest. And frankly, the best way to de debunk one of these conspiracy theories or any theory, conspiracy theory, look, the best way to debunk or, or to challenge anything is to grant the premise and think it through. And when it comes to these nutty conspiracy theories, this is the best way to do it. And the best way to do it is this. Grant the premise, right? Grant it. Let's assume that their theory is correct. Now, if you grant the premise, certain things have to happen, and that's when you get into trouble. If there is a plesiosaur in Loch Ness, it is an air-breathing dinosaur. It's going to have to surface 10 times an hour for air, the lock is of limited size, and so if there is an air-breathing plesiosaur in Loch Ness, it's not going to surface once every 60 years, 20 miles away, and leave just a little wake, even though no other sign of it. It's going to pop its head up every 10 minutes the same way that a whale does. So there is no Loch Ness monster, period, because you cannot, using their own theory, you can't explain the theory. 9-11 um, inside job? How many people had to be on the inside? Watergate consisted of what, three people and, and, and there's a leak? No, it's impossible. It's just impossible. Brought down by detonations? No, I told you, it takes months to prepare a building for, for, for so-called implosion. Where were the debt cords? Where were the, where were the, you can't blow up explosives. You blew up explosives in suitcases on the floor of the World Trade Center. You blow the windows out, the building wouldn't come down. It's just not true. My theory, on the other hand, I can explain the whole thing. I can explain to you exactly what happened on 9-11. I can explain to you exactly what happened on the moon landing. I can explain to you what about jet engines and so on. So it's this kind of skeptical testing thing. But the way you do it is you have to grant the premise and see where it goes. Just off the fly with this person talking about chemtrails, it's like, well, are they commercial jets? Well, I don't know. Somebody has to know. You don't get to say, I don't know. Yeah, they're, chemical, they're, they're, they're commercial airliners. All right, so why are the pilots doing this? Well, they're paying them tons of money. And if they, and if they tell anybody, then they're going to come after their kids. How much money would you have to be paid to poison your own people? It, it's so irrational, 
that it's a sign of mental illness. And furthermore, it's also a sign of a deep-seated, really deep-seated fundamental loathing of people. The idea, and, 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 and you know, and ultimately it all goes down to the big reward, right? Everything always, all the time, everything always, all the time with the left comes down to unearned moral superiority. So they're against chemtrails because pilots are being paid lots of money to poison American citizens. They were taking lots of money, but I would never take that kind of money because I love people and I'm a good person. You couldn't pay me enough money to spray poison on the American people because I'm a liberal. How many conservative pilots do you think you could find to be talked into spraying poison on the American people? The answer is none, none, that's the answer. All right, we ran a pretty quick show here in PAC 77-1, just said, Scott, please ask Bill a question. So let's unveil the, um, let's unveil the, uh, the now witness the uh, awesome firepower of this fully armed and operational live stream uh, TV thing. So I'm going to just basically, I don't know, I do a little dog and pony show here. Scotty, go ahead, you're there. Ask, you get to ask me one question to close the show because we're doing a little shorter one tonight. It's only an hour and 50 minutes instead of the usual seven hours and 90 or whatever it is. Uh, so I'll just sit there and wait for Scott to ask. You, uh, he, no, oh, oh, he says, Ari's on the last question. Scott's trying to get out of it. Come on, Scotty, you can do it. It doesn't matter if it's personal. If it's personal, I'll just lie. Um, yeah, so these people, they need something. They're, they're, they're in, they're, they really have a, they're broken. They're, they're, they're so broken and they're, and they're, um, and they're, sense of self-esteem is so low that they have to be a part of this you know this this secret kind of you know we we possess the secret knowledge and unlike you know unlike those evil conservative republicans who who brought down the world trade centers and killed millions of or thousands of american citizens and and who are poisoning people from the air and who faked the moon landing in order to nuke russia or whatever other reason we're better than that you know you're you're just an idiot actually you're just kind of really something wrong with you there's something fundamentally fundamentally wrong with you you're really really broken and you're dumber than a box of hammers by the way dumber than a box of hammers so we're still waiting for scott out here to ask the all-time question because now he's on the spot see scotty if you can't come up with a question can you really run a whole show? There, I thrown it right back in your face. Come on, buddy, you can do it. We're looking for the final. I don't know, man. Joe Baseball says, "Ask Bill about um, RK." Don't ask me about RK. Viper Chick says, "Ask him how he got scared." Don't ask me that either. That's another hour each. We've all heard that story a uh, hundred times. <sighs> Anyway, um, I am never, uh, I, I am, I never, I never stop being surprised at how thin the arguments of the left are, just how thin they are. Um, oh, here we go. Bill, how do you balance the intensity of issues with the need to be happy and relaxed? Now, that's a superb question, Scotty, and the answer is I don't. That's why I'm basically just a walking stress pill of, uh, of uh, of rage and uh, and uh, tachycardia, um, it's it's yeah that you know, I, you know I, I told you about a personal question boy that's pretty much it that's probably the most personal question I could answer and you know since you asked me I've always the great thing about this show is I've always been just completely honest about things and I've never ever ever shied away from asking answering a question pretty much straight on the personal ones especially. It's been a really bad summer. It's been a bad year. 
uh, for me personally. Um, you know, I, my job is to every day wade into the things that many of you are, are kind of in on. Scott's got the same job as I do. Um, you know, we have to wait. We don't just get to watch and, and kind of turn away from this destruction of everything that we love, and not just that we love, everything that's good for people. Everything, it really is the last best hope of humanity, this whole freedom, limited government, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of belief, you can get in a car and go someplace. Um, all that stuff is, Scott understands it, and I understand it, most of you understand it. It's not the default condition of mankind. It's not how things always were and always will be. It's very rare. It's very precious. It has to be defended. And, and guys like Scott and me, and, and many of you as well, every day we go out there and we have to watch this being destroyed, intentionally destroyed, the roots of it just chopped up by people who, who hate it because it limits their power or their image of themselves or their narcissistic vision of themselves. And just the fact that watching the world, watching this country take these kind of hits is just awfully, awfully hard psychically. It's just, it's tough. You know, when I have bad weekends, and usually it's worse for me on the weekends, during the week I get to at least work, but d during the weekends sometimes it can get really awful. And, and, and I realized, you know, to my despair that I honestly do not see an upward trend line in this country anywhere. I just I just don't see one trend line that is up. The economy is in terrible trouble. The, the amount of debt is enormous and getting higher. The unemployment rate continues to go up. People are getting more and more miserable. We don't, we don't have a big space mission coming up. We don't even have a little space mission coming up. Electronics are not getting enormously faster. It's not like we're coming out with new things like iPad. Even the, even the toys are getting boring. Um, no one has a sense of, of higher purpose. Uh, no one has a sense of, um, I don't believe in sacrifice. And when I say higher purpose, I don't mean like, you know, uh, this social thing. It's just like there's there's no, there's with the exception of the military, and even the military, right? We're talking about this too. There's very few places where you can go and be surrounded by hardworking, competent people who, who, are, who are trying to move the ball. You know, progress used to mean things like, well, now we fly faster. Now, now we fly higher. It used to take us seven hours to get from LA to New York. Now we can get there in five, and it's been five for seventy years now. Um, you know, it's like there is no actual progress because it's been killed. One of the reasons it's been killed is because we've been demonizing energy. But most of the reason it's been killed is because we've been demonized by people that hate us and everything we stand for. And they came into our system with, um, with you know, with a lot of different entry routes. I mean, the Frankfurt School was in the 20s. They came here in the 30s and 40s. They did all kinds of things to uh, destroy our belief in every single American institution. But, I mean, the progressive movement was here before that, you know. And, you know, you hear people saying, oh, well, we gave, them, we gave Indians smallpox and tried to exterminate them with biological weapons, and we did this 30 years before germ theory. That's a remarkable achievement, you know. Um, so... It's tough, and unlike Scott, who has a terrific family, and I've met them all, and they're just terrific, and Scott has just really grounded Steve Green the same way. I don't mean to sound weepy or, you know, sad or anything about this, but I'm kind of out here by myself. Um, that's a, just the path I've chosen, but it's there's not a lot of sanctuary for me. I just have to 
you know, got, I mean, Glenn Beck does what I do. He does it very, very, very well. And Glenn Beck has a staff of hundreds and he's a superb businessman. I'm a crummy businessman. It's me and one other person. We had a, you know, had all kinds of problems again that have to be put out and it's, it's, it's just nonstop stress. Um, and I think, uh, you know, well, I, you know, I wasn't going to really talk about this for a while. I actually had something, um, I had something that it was, it, it's not really an announcement. I don't really need to make an announcement, just something that's helping me cope a little bit. Um, and I might as well just say it here to close the show, I guess. Uh, I, I've been wanting to make these movies and I haven't been able to because I have so much content to shovel out. I mean, it's just amazing how much work I have to do. I, on a given week, I might put out, you know, when I, we just got enough time over targets to put them back together again, but I might put out 10 videos a week maybe when you count trifecta segments, firewall, uh, afterburner, um, you know, hot seat, time over target. It's a lot. Stratosphere launch, seven, eight, nine, ten a week. It's a lot. Um, and I'm and I'm trying to uh, to get these movies done, and I can't do both at the same time. And so, somewhere about a, three weeks ago, I was just really feeling it. I mean, just the stress is just overwhelming. And I suddenly just had this thought, just clear as day. We're we're about to um, have to gear up. It's not a time for me to relax. I mean, I, I kind of took the summer off in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, we got another big fight ahead of us, and I, we can't lose this fight. I mean, I don't know how much the country is so strong, but I don't know how long we can hang on. So I just kind of realized I've been doing this for probably 11 years or so. And, um, and I've decided that I am going to continue to do this political messaging through the inauguration on January 20th of 2017, I think. Go one more, and I mean, I'm going to work at it really hard. I'm going to push it. This is a real important election. I'm going to give it everything I've got for the next 15 months, and that's, that's all I'm going to do is just dig in. And the thought that comforted me about this was, uh, you know how I feel about, you know, stolen honor and how sensitive I am to those things and, you know, hanging out with actual fighter pilots who, who um, you know, gave me a, a call sign is, a, is an enormous honor because I don't deserve it. Um, but um, what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this political stuff through Inauguration Day. And then I will have done 12 years. And the thing that helped me, I think, quite a bit is 12 years is three tours. Uh, you know, I know what I do is not to be compared with what uh, people in the military do because people in the military risk their actual lives and they get shot at and killed. Although I do get my threat, uh, fair share of death threats as well, I guess. But I do what I do because I love this country and I love the ideas that it was founded on. And, and I kind of think that by... Um, by inauguration day of 2017 that'll be three tours three four-year tours and i wouldn't stop doing it after that but i think that's time when i would go into the you know reserves uh and get on with these movies because I, I get so much more satisfaction out of it and so much more uh fun collaborating with people and i don't have to use first person singular look we got a lot of heavy lifting ahead and you're going to have my full attention and my full efforts between now and the election. And then after the election, whoever goes one way or another, I want to be able to say that I fought this guy from the day he was sworn in until the day he was sworn out and before then, too. Um, 
but yeah, it's hard. And without any family support, you know, no, Im- no immediate family, no family of my own, it's really, it's tough. And it's uh, stressful, Scotty. And, uh, and you know the stress as well as I do, and you're a target as I am as well. But I see you with your family, and I see how happy you are and how happy they are. And I know it's not all happiness. I know it's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff behind it. But Steve, our friend Steve Green, too, you know, I mean, he um, he does the show. He has his martini. He goes back to his uh, little uh, castle in the hills over um, Colorado, and he's got his uh, son and his wife and everything, and it's great. Uh, and it's, you know, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling it. And I'm just getting a, I'm getting a lot of nightmares uh, for the last three or four years. I mean, bad nightmares and pretty much every time, and they're always the same. They're like combat nightmares. I mean, physical fights, gunfights, this kind of thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the reasons I've you know been missing some deadlines on membership stuff is because I've been lately been getting very little sleep, and, and I, I don't remember most of these things, but I remember one pretty clearly. It just happened about a um, couple days ago. I just had this kind of, this is the kind of thing that I, I guess I'm just trying to process in my sleep. I, I, I go to a lot of events and I get a lot of pictures taken. It's my favorite part of the job is going out to speaking events and then hanging out with people afterwards and, and talking with people and, and, you know, and they're so lovely and they're so sweet and they're so nice. And, uh, and, I, and in this dream, I had this, um, I saw this picture and it was a typical picture that I've done hundreds, if not thousands of, and I'm just finished talking and I'm in my suit, and, you know, and I'm, and somebody's come up and I've got my arm around and I'm smiling and they've got this kind of different expression on their face. And when I look at the photograph, what I can see in the photograph, but what I couldn't see at the time is on the right, they're holding this big freaking knife. You know, they've got this big knife right there. And they're looking at me in an expression that I couldn't see when I was looking in the camera taking the picture. And it's like, this is the kind of thing that I'm just having a process, you know, and it's like, it's, um, I don't feel like I'm in an actual physical danger. Consciously, I certainly don't feel like I'm in any kind of extreme physical danger. I might be in somewhat larger physical danger than any of you, but it's not significant, not in this country, not yet. And let's keep it that way. So I don't, I don't want to suggest that that's how I walk around all the time in terms of, you know, living in fear because I don't, but yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. Just as a perfect example, T-Dog uh, Lives just said maybe those that took bills kill all the progressives jokes seriously. I didn't say kill all the progressives. I said if a car comes into Texas with California tags, you should open fire on it immediately and not ask any questions. And I wouldn't use small arms either. If you have a rocket launcher or mortar, grenades going up from the air, whatever, don't take any chances. They're going to come in and ruin your state. So now, um, you know, a lot of Google searches are, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Bill Whittle calls for the murder of American citizens. And and they, the people that saw the video know I was kidding because when the first story appeared, it was like Bill, uh, conservative blogger, quote, jokingly calls for it, and they ran the video. But everybody who picked it up downstream, the jokingly went away, and the video wasn't there. And so, you know, some people actually really believe that, and I, and I get that sometimes. Um and you you know it it gets to you. you you really just you don't get to walk away from it it's you really you know and the, and the thing that's the worst about this is and i don't think there's an exception to what i'm about to say i do not recall ever it's not true 
it's interesting that there is one example that proves that I'm not making this up. I wrote an essay, probably my fourth or fifth essay, at Eject, Eject, Eject. It was real early, and it was called War, and it was the case for Iraq. And somebody wrote a point-by-point response to what I had said, and they were actually engaging me with the arguments I had made. And that was 12 years ago, maybe? Since then, the the criticisms and the, the comments I get, there's not a single person... I've not seen a single comment that ever addressed anything I actually said and, and didn't put words in my mouth or, or, or feelings into my heart. I get called a racist all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm an anti-racist, you know? If, if it turns out that uh, Tyrone, um, for God's sakes, what's his name? Uh, it's gone. Michael Brown in Ferguson. If it turned out that he was innocent and was in fact going to the store and, and was assassinated by a policeman, then I'd be on the side of Michael Brown. But when he didn't do that, when he assaulted the policeman and tried to get his gun away, and when the country is turning that into a cause for something that didn't happen in order to gin up a black population to keep a black president in office so that they can continue to be held in slavery, that's not racism. That's actually love for people. It's actually a love for people and a desire to see them want to succeed as well as anybody else in this country. And I get a little tired of of these names being ladled on me and doing the dating scene out here in California, by the way, I can't tell you how many times I would meet somebody or I'd be talking to somebody and they're just as smitten as you could possibly imagine. And who can blame them? And then all of a sudden they find out that you're a conservative and it's like the light goes out like that because now all of a sudden, you know, I'm a Nazi. And I've had this happen after three or four hours where people just completely entranced and enamored think I'm a nice, charming, lovely, wonderful person because I am. And then they find out that I'm a conservative and then it's like the lights go out. And I realized that these people are now trusting what Bill Maher says about me more than they've been able to perceive with their own last uh, three hours of being with me. Scott says he feels my pain, brother. He does feel my pain, and he is my brother. He's one of my brothers, and I have very few. Uh, but Scott's one of them. And it's they don't even have the courage to to attack you for what you believe. They have to make up arguments that you didn't make and attack those arguments. Now, ultimately, that's an indication that we're right. It's like, it's like if you, if you have to manufacture racist signs and take them to a tea party. If you're a progressive and you have to manufacture a racist sign and take it to a Tea Party event and hold it up to prove that the Tea Party is racist because there are no racist signs there, that's evidence that you're wrong. And it's evidence that we're right. Now, with all of this said, I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression. You know, I was out at dinner two nights ago or something, three nights ago, sitting in a restaurant, and I called for the check and to have the the food uh, put in in a bag. And this waitress comes up to me and she says, uh, the gentleman over there uh, wants to buy your dinner. I'd never seen this person in my life. And I said, you, are you sure you got that right? Yeah, he'd, he'd like to buy you dinner. And and for almost all of my life, I would have just said, well, that's very kind. And I would have gone over and I would have, um, I would have gone over and I would have thanked him and declined because it doesn't seem to me, just seems improper. But I was corrected on this. And I listened to this correction. I was corrected on this. I said, no, people need to, if somebody makes a gesture like that, they want to show you their appreciation, and it's insulting to them to not accept it. And I, and I, 
I've come to that place reluctantly. It's not easy for me. But I did, and I just went over and spent you know, a few minutes talking with the guy, and he said, I was never really into politics. I believe a lot of nonsense. I started listening to you, and, and you just really turned all the lights on for me. And it's like, well, thank you. It made my day and, and week and month and year. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, so, so it's definitely got its upside. And I've had to cut a lot of um, – I've had to cut a lot of – I've had to cut a lot of people out of my life lately. You know, there's a lot of people that, that just, I think, were not necessarily using me, although there was some of that. Uh, there were there were just people who who were just, you know, not just net drains, but almost complete drains of people I used to just the highest opinion of. I mean, just an enormously high opinion of. And I just realized, no, they're taken advantage of me and they're and they're um and they're you know they're just using me frankly it's all there is to it you just need to wake up kid you know you need to be you need to be tough enough to get up and, f- and face this music and as um maltz 42 says yeah it would be a lot easier if i didn't live in a sea of liberalism but i have to be here uh and so look uh, this is sounding a lot more weepy and sad than i want it to uh but i got the question and i thought i'd answer it it's been a really rough summer, and we're going to buckle down, and we're going to get to work, and, and, and the airplane helps enormously. And, and I have to tell you, um, going to Oshkosh with Burt Rutan and being with pilots helped a lot, but uh, I don't know if you're still with us there, Foghorn, but that, that day, that one day going down there and getting uh, an actual call sign from actual fighter pilots, that charged me for a year. Uh, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. Uh, and I'm reconnecting with some older friends I had, you know, watching college football games, watching the Gators again because the big, fat, dumb, ugly guys not coaching them anymore. So we have some kind of hope, I think. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, uh, Dave uh, Butchner just said, so glad we do the show so that people can tell me that we appreciate you. I get that all the time from people. I don't want to sound like I don't. It makes it, it has made my life. I was completely anonymous, completely unknown. Uh, I had a lot of things to say, and nobody knew who I was, and it was terrible. And this has been by a million miles the best thing that's ever happened to me. But, you know, I personally have done, I don't know what the number is, but it's easily in excess of 2,000 video segments, easily in excess of that, and it might be 3,000. I mean, Scotty and I have done almost 1,800 trifectas alone, 1,500, 1,700. Uh, plus, you know, I've got probably 300 afterburners and you know, 100 firewalls and stuff. That's a lot of stuff. And I've just finished 95 time over targets for members. It's a lot of stuff. And there's only so, not only so much you can say because I keep surprising myself that I'm able to say anything that even I find interesting anymore. But just so you know about this um, going to the reserves back in, you know, 17 months from now or whatever. Um is then I'll be able to make comments on things that I want to do it. If it comes up every week or month or whatever, I can say something I need to say. But um, when I do get to work with on movies and I get to write something that's not first-person singular in the present tense, when I, when I get a chance to write something where I can use villains and music and, and pacing and I can... And I can hide the point I'm trying to make and reveal it a little bit. I can use people's actions. I can use flawed people. I can use language that I don't use. I can I can I can do all kinds of things um, about uh, 
just in the toolbox, just as a writer and as a, and as a uh, you know, as a director and stuff. That's a big deal. It's enormously satisfying. But working with people, you know, the, one of the things that meant so much to me about the trip down there um, to, um, to McDill was I'd never met these people before. I hadn't even met Foghorn before. And all of a sudden, I'm out there flying with guys who are far better pilots than me, and I'm an excellent pilot. Uh, and and by the time I go, these people are calling me brother, and 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 I believe them. And and just to be around people who are competent and capable and um, care and love this country, you know, love it, are ready to give their lives for it, go out there and kill bad guys on a daily basis. Just being in the company of people like that really means an awful lot to me. Um, so, uh, yeah. Scott Ott means a lot to me. Scott, you have no idea how much support you, you've given me. You just have no idea knowing, just, you really don't have any real appreciation of just what having you a friend means to me because I know you go through this and you're a much, 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 much better man than I am. So, um, yeah. So, you know, we have our we have our warrior friends. I miss Andrew Breitbutter an awful lot. I'm, I miss, uh, I miss him a lot. I miss what he would be saying. I miss his moral clarity very much. And, um, yeah, it's just nice for me to be able to get back and collaborate with people. And when I say collaborate with people, I mean, you know, guys like Scott and Steve and not that, you know, malignant lowlife Andrew Clavin who's been riding on my coattails for years now and apparently has written a book of some kind that no one's read. But um, anyway, yeah, so uh, you know, I've I've heard I've heard people refer to um, bill time, and it's true, and I lose a lot of sleep over bill time. I I really do. I stress over it a lot. Uh, you know, it's um, it's just just it's just overwhelming sometimes. Just the amount of just coal that just has to be shoveled just to stay in place. And I've been trying to do that and find the energy to get these movies done as well and I just don't I just don't have the I just don't have the, the juice for it so um, it was a real liberation for me two weeks ago three weeks ago um, when I finally realized that there was a you know there was a rotation home date for me and I know I don't want to steal again I'm very sensitive about stealing military glory but I think in military terms in a lot of ways and I do think that uh, you know January of 20th or whatever the date is of 2017, I'm going home. Uh, I'm not going away, and I'm not done, and it's not like you're never going to see me again. I love the Stratosphere Lounge. It's not work. It's absolutely fun. But on that date, I hope I can, you know, come back with some honor and say I did my uh, three terms of uh, four years each and uh, did the best I could, and then I can continue to do the work because, frankly, you know, the movies have always been something I want to do, and they've always been something that was fun and could pay well um but i and it's just so this is a good note for me to end on because i don't want anybody feeling sad about any of all this stuff ultimately the main reason i want to do these movies like big bad problems is because it is enormously magnifying of what i want to say uh, doing a film is like it's like the ring of power i mean it's doing films 
If I do a movie like Big Bad Problems, which doesn't have a lot of political overtones, almost none. It's a science fiction horror comedy. There's a science fiction horror comedy about two brothers who are trying to figure out how to be men. And they have their own guns and they have their own cars. And people in this convoy are a little militia. They have their own air force. They have their own tech. They have their own drones. They have their own surveillance. They have their own everything. They're trying to stop this threat from another world. And their government is trying to prevent them from doing this. It's it's funny and it's cool and it's scary and it's clever and it's got music and pacing and there's just neat stuff lying around and 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 it's a great great story it's actually a great 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 story it's a story about about finding who you are it's a, it's the it's the journey of the hero it's it's all it's the people stepping up into their their kingship it's a terrific story and i can't wait to do it so if you're thinking that it's like, boy, I just can't wait to get out of here so I can just, you know, get out of the fight, that's not it at all. I, I, need to, I need to do what I'm doing now while I'm good at it and get through one more election cycle, and then I need to really just step up and out because I, wanna, I don't want to reach conservatives. Conservatives already get it. I want 15-, 16-year-old boys to see these things and just go, oh, man, that's pretty awesome. You know, stepping up and defending that girl there was pretty cool. And she can take care of herself, too. And look at that. They built their own thing. And that guy's flying an airplane. It looks like a spaceship, but it looks real. And it's like, you know, I want to I want to I want to do for these people what was done for me with things like, you know, that Werner von Braun animation on the on the wonderful world of Disney or, or uh, you know, the, the 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 Thunderbirds and stuff. I want to do all that stuff. So um, anyway, that's the plan. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I really don't want to go out of this answering, uh, you know, I guess a great question, honest question, gave you an honest answer. I don't want people thinking, you know, I'm about to keel over and I don't want people thinking, gee, poor sad Bill, it's just really awful, you know, being him. The, the, um, when people come up to me in a, in an airport, let me just, I don't know if I mentioned this before, I don't want to harp on this because this is a little braggy, but I don't want to sound braggy, but it's, it's important and it's not really a reflection of me. Um, it's really more of a reflection of you. Um, I was dating somebody pretty famous for a while, uh, and uh, and she'd been, not only was she pretty famous, she'd been around the most famous people in the world. And she said, uh, we were in Vegas, and uh, I got approached twice in Vegas, just people just two, two times, same thing, very shy kind of a thing, kind of like, Somebody just would come up and say, are, are you Bill Wilson? Yeah. I said, hey, I, I really hate to interrupt you. I just want to thank you for everything and just tell you, just, you know, you're doing really great work and it really means a lot to me and it really helps and clarifies things and stuff. Said, well, thank you very much. It's really sweet of you. It means the world to me. And after that happened the second time, she said, you know, I've been around, I've been around um, some of the most famous people in the world. And when, what, what happens in those cases is people come up and they want to be photographed with you. They want evidence that they met you. They want to prove to their friends that you were in their company and it's kind of a cool kind of a thing to brag about. But she said, that's not what, that's not what I'm seeing here. They're not looking for, they're not looking for the fact that they met you and they're not trying to get any evidence. They're thanking you basically is what they're doing. They're, they're actually, you can see them overcoming their natural politeness and reserve and they're taking that kind of risk to come over here and thank you for the work that you do. And, and it's a profound thing. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it just made me so much better person than I used to be. And, 
and it happens to me frequently, and I, and I absolutely love it. So I don't want you guys to think um, anything other than that, really. It's, uh, it's just, you know, you're out here. You're defending these ideas. You get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of hate. Scotty can, you know, Scott, you need to do a show. It's very simple. Um, it'll look better than PJTV lately, you know. I mean, at least you'll be, you know, there'll be video. Uh, it's real simple to set up. I'd be happy to talk to you about it because I'd love to hear what you have to say. I know Scott's, I'm not joking, Scott Ott's the best man I know. He really is the best man I know. And, um, and Scott gets it too. Scott gets these criticisms. Scott, you know, was accused, you know, he ran the only clean campaign in the history of politics, basically, and and you just have to face it because it is a form of it's a form of um, it's a form of combat it's not equivalent to the real combat but it's you know you can come you you can come away with um, these these things hurt you know it hurts it it, it hurts a lot uh, when people take something that ridiculous seriously like somebody actually actually honestly would believe that I would actually be in favor of like opening fire and killing people it hurts that people could be that mean because I don't think anybody really believes it I think they're just saying it because they want to strike back and 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 some of these YouTube comments you know they're just I don't read them anymore I really don't I, I just glance when I go to link them or something it's it's you know it hurts because it's unfair it's not true it drives me nuts so anyway, um, I may be, uh, I've made a promise that I mean to keep, and that is I'm going to fly my airplane when it cools down a little bit back down to um, Tampa, Florida, and go to um, night, er night Field and hang out with my buddies, um, who, once again, I should just, because I've got it here, I just want to remind you one more time, these, uh, these Air Force pilot friends of mine who gave me my uh, call sign in their, in their brand-new flight uniforms. Yeah, I want to go hang out with these guys some more. And I and I'm going to fly down there, and it'll take me a week, and um, and we'll fly around, and we'll have a good time, then I'll fly back, uh, and that kind of thing gives me an awful lot of, um, you know, support and pleasure. It's good to be. The reason I bring this up is because, having had experiences like that where complete strangers um, take you in. Uh, people you admire and respect, people who, who are what you always wanted to be, basically. They're what you always wanted to be. When they do something like that for you, it is it, it is so um, moving and so um, just, you know, it's, it's such an honor that it it just so outweighs all of the negatives. You can't even really talk about them in the same sentence. Anyway, um, that's about it. Uh, you know, people have asked me many times, why do you live there? Why don't you live someplace where people will like you and, and uh, you know, they don't treat you like you're you know, some kind of circus freak when they find out what you do. It'd be nice if they just treated me like a circus freak. They don't treat me like a circus freak. They treat me like a like a guy who skins, um, you know, dogs alive for dog stew. Uh, so... Um, I, the reason I stay here is because if you're a volcanologist, you got to live under the volcano, right? I mean, you can't study a volcano if you're on the other side of the uh, other side of the planet. So anyway, um, 
I'm looking forward to uh, turning this room into a movie production studio, and I'm looking forward to getting the message out there to younger people, many millions more of them. I'm, used to, I'm looking forward to getting messages to them that they don't even realize are a message. And, uh, and finally, um, I'm looking forward to uh, collaborating with people again and, and really just getting a chance to, to do it. Because when you talk, when you're on a movie set with people uh, and you have a chance to do your own work, there's nothing like it. It is the most fun thing in the world. And, just, and the thing I think I'll say finally is, I always say finally, when you write a character and you put a lot of work into a character and you, and you try to, you know, what you're basically doing is you're looking at this gigantic funnel of reality. It's all reality. It's just nothing but this reality. And then as a writer, you have to kind of funnel all of this thing down and reduce it to a um, series of little um, black and marks on a white piece of paper. And then an actor takes that distilled, refined reality, which is really just a couple of sentences of, of you know, he moves to the door, and then a couple of lines of dialogue, and then they have to rehydrate that kind of thing and expand it back out into a real person that looks like it belongs in reality again. So when you do that as a writer, and then also if you get to be fortunate enough as a director and you even get to cast these people, the most amazing thing about the collaboration in movies is, um, is that when somebody, when a good actor takes your, your lines and your, and your limited amount of stuff that you've given them, and they surprise you by bringing that character that you created into sharper focus than you ever had them when they when they when they do things that are like man I never thought of that that's exactly right this person that I created is actually more real than they were and that happens all the time on a good movie and and when you have a a scene lit and a and a lighting director comes along and does something with the lighting or the angle or you look at it go, my god that's just so much more beautiful than I ever thought it was going to be so um yeah it's tremendously it's tremendously fun collaborating, and uh, and I think that's the thing I'm looking forward to the most. But first things first, now let's make sure that this that this thin-skinned, traitorous, narcissistic harpy doesn't get elected because I don't know if we can bear it. Anyway, uh, uh, somebody said I can't imagine the last uh, Stratosphere Lounge. There's not going to be a last Stratosphere Lounge. We're going to be on Stratosphere Lounges till the day I die. Honestly. It's, I'm just going to keep doing them. We'll be doing them about movies. We'll be doing about everything. And like I said, it's not, it's not going home. It's not retiring. It's just, uh, you know, going from active duty into the reserves. And um, I'll come out, uh, you know, what is it, um, one weekend a, a month and two weeks a year. And, um, and we'll still keep doing this, but we'll be doing better things, not, not less things. Well, I've got a show probably in three pieces, but I think I have a one piece that gets saved to my hard drive. I got to figure out how to resync these things because it drives me nuts when um, when they uh, you know when the lip sync doesn't work. But I could probably figure that out. I'm in the business after all. So that was episode 102 of the Stratosphere Lounge. I think our runtime's 218 on this one. Not too bad, Scotty. The ball's in your court now, young man. Um, you do you do a wondrous show, and I'd love to help you set it up if you need any help. And uh, and then uh, you get this thing done, and I'll link to it. Not only link to it, I'll watch it. I mean, you just you're just a great guy, and I'm really proud to know you. 
and the rest of you folks have got to meet out there too and those of you who haven't gotten to meet I've got to meet a lot of you please disregard all of that you know you know poor poor pitiful me thing it's been an amazing life and an amazing opportunity I love it and uh, and I can't wait to overthrow these communist bastards I just talked to Scott about this directly I know I don't, I don't know when it was but back in the day somewhere you know, whenever this thing is over, and especially if we win the election, but at least when this guy leaves, it's going to be like the it's going to be like the fall of Baradur. It's going to be like the the Black Tower collapsing and that red eye just looking around. I just want to live long enough to see it. And frankly, the darker it gets, the you know, before then, the more that uh, moment means. So, um, all right. Anyway, uh, thank you for all the kind comments during this whole thing. Uh, it's really very, very sweet, and it, it really does mean the world to me. Keeps me going, and the guys we had here for the stress for lunch. The uh, next show, I got to talk about this person that wrote me an open letter on video. It was just terrific. Um, so, thank you, uh, thank you as always for everything. And uh, if you're a member, thanks uh, for putting up with us, and and uh, thanks for keeping the lights on here and giving me my little 2001 wall and my little you know corn captain wall and all that other stuff. And um, my. I'm out of town for the weekend. Going to go watch the Reno Air Races. Uh, but um, I think we'll be back on Wednesday and we'll do 103. All right. So uh, thanks again for everything, everybody. And um, y'all be careful out there. And uh, we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye.